This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire. Even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your 9 to 5 for 9 holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, I got to the bottom of it. The mystery president, you know, the uh, the $50 million valuation, Pac-12 president. It's been months, weeks at least, since people have started talking and wondering who the president was. Who was the person who pushed that... $50 million valuation to the middle of the room. We're told, if you believe the uh, CYA act that's going on, cover your beep, act that's going on from the presidents, we're told that there was one president in particular among the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors who thought that the conference media rights should be valued at $50 million per school. One president in particular. A lone gunman, so to speak. Well, I got to the bottom of who that person is. Because you'll remember in the fall of 2022, just last October, ESPN offered the Pac-12 $30 million per school. Could have kept the Pac-12 together. You and I would never have had to go through all of this stuff that we've been talking about, the scenarios, the Pac-2, Colfax, you know, courtroom with a federal judge or superior court judge becoming a central figure in the Pac-2's lawsuit against the Pac-12 and Commissioner George Klyovkov and Oregon and Washington off to the Big Ten where they will play a Big Ten schedule that was released yesterday and Stanford going, all right, we'll go to the ACC. None of that would have happened if the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors had been a little more reasonable. But it comes to, uh, to we come to find out that the usual suspects that you would have thought were those presidents or were the president like the identity of that president was a burning issue for me you know as a reporter it was bothering me i wasn't losing sleep over it but i was talking about it with people every day and it was coming up every day who was that president why did that president think that the conference's media rights were worth 50 million dollars and i can't even remember the first time i heard about it but i can tell you every time i went to report on what was going on with the pac-12 conference it came up in some form or fashion, and most people believed that it was Arizona State President Michael Crow. They believed it was Crow because he was a hardliner, a little bit of a uh, visionary slash boat blowhard. Like, I don't know if that is a slash that you want next to your name. But on one hand, like some people on campus at Arizona State say Michael Crow's done some great things, and other people are like, he needs to go. He is a uh, loudest voice in the room. Uh, hardliner, kind of like a, you know, an irritating uh, presence and personality for some people, and obviously was one of the biggest apologists for Larry Scott, the 
former commissioner of the Pac-12 conference. Uh, so a lot of people thought it was Michael Crow. It turns out it's not Michael Crow. He wasn't that president. Others believed it was Kirk Schultz, Washington State's president. Why? Because he sort of positions himself as a guy who knows the college athletic space better than most. And by better than most, I mean better than most presidents and chancellors, which isn't saying a lot, but Kirk Schultz has done a lot of good work as part of the NCAA Council and uh, the President's Council and all this other stuff. And, you know, he was instrumental when the college football playoff was expanded. He was one of the people banging the drum for that in the President's and Chancellor's world. And he understands sports, came from Kansas State, at Washington State. He gets it. So a lot of people suspected that if it weren't Michael Crow, it would have to be Kirk Schultz at Washington State. Nope, not Kurt Schultz either. Then there was uh, some confusion. Like, could it be Washington or Oregon? Like, you know, one of the uh, one of the villains, so to speak. And and don't at me. I'm just saying that's the narrative. The narrative would would fit. Like, hey, Michael Crow or Kurt Schultz, or maybe it was Oregon or Washington. Maybe they they wanted out of the conference, and so maybe uh, you know the uh, president at Washington, Anna Marie Casse who acted weird last week. You know, she wrote me a letter on Friday. Friday night, I'm at the Oregon State-Utah game. I got a letter. Got a letter. I, f- I felt like I was on Blue's Clues. I got a letter. I-, I had to go to the mailbox. No, I got a letter in my email inbox. It was like a PDF of a letter from a spokesperson at Washington who said, hey, here's a letter from Anna Marie Casse, the president. She wanted to write you a letter. And I was like, hey, this is a weird way. Why doesn't she just send me an email? Partly, probably, maybe because there's a records request trail there. I don't know. Maybe she just wanted to involve her communications person because she's writing to a media member. I don't know. I didn't ask her for a letter. I didn't write her a letter. She wasn't writing me back. But she wrote me this letter, and and then I'm at the Oregon State-Utah game, and I get this letter. In fact, I was on air when the letter arrived. It was like 5 o'clock. I was on air doing the show, and all of a sudden I get this letter, and I was like, what the heck is this thing? So I open it up, and I read it, and I can barely understand it. That's how dumb I am. Like, she's an academic, uh, university president, writing me, and I'm reading her letter, and I was like, you know, I had to show it to Anna. I was like, can you read this? Can you tell me what what you read here? And then, so I just published the letter last Saturday morning at johnconzano.com as, as the lead to the Saturday mailbag. Why not? It's a letter. It leads the mailbag. Uh, but but I thought, well, maybe it's Anna Marie Casse, the Washington president, or maybe one of the interim presidents at Oregon. You know, maybe one of Oregon's interim presidents meddled and created a problem. And, you know, ultimately, wouldn't that be fitting that that caused the Pac-12 conference to not be able to get a meteorite deal? Well, it turns out it was none of the above. It wasn't any of the villains. It wasn't didn't fit any of the narratives. It wasn't Michael Crow. It wasn't uh, Kirk Schultz. It was Randall Taylor, the president at Utah, of all people. Now, Utah was happier than anybody to be in the Pac-12 conference. You, you know, Utah had no motivation to to be a problem, and so I think Randall Taylor came from a good place, maybe, uh, in sort of pitching to the room that, hey, we should, ask, we should be asking for $50 million. Now, I reached out to Randall Taylor after finding this out, and I said, hey, I know that you were the president who made that recommendation. We should talk. We ended up on the phone this week. We chatted about it for a long time. Uh, I talked with Mark Harlan, the uh, athletic director at Utah, who we've had on the show. I talked to a number of people in the industry, 
And uh, what I gathered uh, after circling back to some of the other presidents is that there's a lot of convenient um, narrative shaping that is going on. And so what I really aim to write today, and I did it at johnconzano.com, and what I aim to tell you about on this radio show is I just want to give you the truth. just want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you how this broke down. And so when you think about, you know, if you're Washington State or Oregon State, when you think about what went wrong and how you ended up where you ended up, maybe some of it makes sense to you, uh, you know, because it doesn't at face value that a conference that's got six teams ranked, three in the top ten, has, uh, you know, an inside track on the Heisman Trophy another year, has Colorado, you know, running around getting seven million people a week to watch their football games, and they're probably like a five and seven or a six and six team at best. And uh, this is a pretty good conference. And so how did this conference end up with no media deal and everybody scattering into the wind? Well, here's one of the reasons why it happened. Taylor Randall and some other presidents in the room came to the conclusion that they felt that the, one of the objectives of this media rights negotiation wasn't just to stay together. This was a mistake. They should have been focused on staying together, but was also to bring UCLA back into the fold. So they thought that the media rights deal that they probably could get was worth about 40 to $45 million. And they were basing that off of numbers that they saw and numbers that were reported about the Big Ten Conference. Remember Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten? Remember when Warren went public and talked about that deal he got and everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is a record deal. It's a billion dollars over so many years and this is going to be great. And look what the Big Ten got. And gosh, it could be worth $80 million a school. It could be worth... $100 million a school by the time it's done. Like, this is just amazing. There was a lot of shaping of the narrative uh, when, it, when you talked about um, the possibility of this media rights deal and, you know, what was happening. And Kevin Warren was as guilty as anybody. We are blessed now, especially with the addition of the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of Southern California, that we will have a footprint in the three major media markets from New York to Los Angeles to Chicago, which will allow us to be even bolder when it comes to corporate partnership and activation. So I look forward to building a very successful and robust business in that area. He pretty much didn't get to build anything after making that speech. He was pushed out. His contract wasn't renewed. And part of that deal was that people began to unpack the media deal and see that, hey, it's not 80, 90, or 100 million. It's closer to 62 and a half million. So I don't know if you know this, but when UCLA testified in front of the UC Regents, they told the UC Regents, we're getting $62.5 million. There's a lot of funny math going on. Like Oregon's president, John uh, Carl Schultz, came out and said, you know, we're going to average $50 million in media distributions. Well, he was, he was fudging a little bit because Oregon will get closer to like $35 million. But he's talking about in seven years when the deal goes up to like 70 or 80 million, yeah, we'll average 50 million. But the truth is UCLA is getting 62.5 million in year one and 65 million in year two. And the Pac-12 didn't know that until December. So in October, when ESPN makes a $30 million a year offer, I had a president tell me, like, quote, nobody was having 30 million, like, you know, 30 million if the Big Ten is worth a hundred million 
Well, we're worth what? 50? So there was some bad math going on. You had a consulting firm that wasn't very good. It was a boutique consulting firm that had no experience in the college media space. Mistake. You had a president uh, at, at a university pushing for $50 million. You had a bunch of other academics in the room who were going, eh, I don't really have a f- feeling about it, so I'll go with the guy who says that he's done the work on it. And they all kind of got in line and said, okay. So we got some support, not just from you know, some of the other presidents, but from some powerful presidents. Stanford's president. I didn't put this in the piece today, but Stanford's president was one of the three voices who rose up alongside uh, you know, Randall Taylor and said, uh, yeah, I think we are worth $50 million. I find it ironic that Stanford had to scramble in the end for pennies on the dollar while its president was going, yeah, yeah, I like the sound of $50 million. See, part of a negotiation is is not putting a number out there or a figure out there that you just want, but actually putting a realistic number out there that you can use as part of the negotiation to get what you're actually worth. You know, like, again, you can hold a garage sale and you can say, yeah, I would like $5,000 for that old set of tires that I have that I can't use anymore. You can put that price tag on the tires. You ain't going to get it. But, you know, maybe it's worth 50 that old set of tires. Maybe. Tires are hard to sell. Tires are one of those things like a car seat for a kid that people don't like buying at garage sales. I don't know if you knew that. But in the end, you know, it takes no brains at all. Just throw figures out and say, yeah, that sounds good. That's what we're worth. But, you know, there, there should have been some pushback, right? So I don't put this all on the three or four presidents who got behind it or even the six presidents who sat quietly and went, yeah, okay, I'll go along with it because this is the world of academia. I think Commissioner George Klyovkov should have been pushing back. That was your job, George. That was part of your job. You're not a messenger. You're the commissioner. You're supposed to manage your people like good attorneys manage a client right what's job of an attorney go out and represent your client right but if you talk to attorneys if you talk to people who are actually work as attorneys you you they'll tell you like a big part of their job is managing their own client managing expectations managing the way the client approaches uh, a negotiation or a deposition or you know you got to manage your expectations of your of the room and George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, failed so badly. So you have a bad consulting firm that wasn't really qualified to do college media rights deals. You had presidents and chancellors who were academics who, you know, a couple of them felt strongly, but most of them were kind of just going along with the flow. You had uh, a commissioner who fashioned himself a messenger instead of a leader. And, and then you, you throw on top of that, they were trying to get UCLA back even as late as December, thinking, hey, if we could get UCLA $50 million, the Bruins would probably think twice about going to the Big Ten. So, yeah, let's ask for $50 million, and if we get it, you know, we throw UCLA in there. You also had some people in the room going, hey, if the Bruins come back, Oregon or Washington are just going to leave and take their spot, so how do we rectify that? So they were looking at unequal revenue sharing that would keep Oregon and UCLA and Washington. They were not at all focused on the ultimate task, which should have been survival. Nobody in October, November, December of last year, and I was talking to these people, nobody was talking about could we not exist if this completely goes sideways. And they should have been focused on that. They should have. 
So in the end, like, you know, look, I don't want to be unfair to the Utah president because I don't, I don't think this is like some crazy person got loose in the middle of the negotiation. That's far from the truth. He cared. This was in his area of expertise. He's a business expert. He had consulted. He is uh, talking to his other presidents. He even asked George Klyovkov, the commissioner, apparently, could he go into the negotiations so that he could see what was being said on the other side? And he was told no. They didn't want presidents and chancellors in the room for that. I think that was a mistake. Should have allowed him in there. I think it would have solved some problems. I think radar would have been up at least from the presidents. The other presidents would have known, hey, we're not getting good numbers here. This Apple thing isn't as good as the ESPN thing we passed on in uh, in October. And so in the end, yeah, I do think it's important. Like amid the college football, we're in week six. We've got great teams. We've got great matchups this weekend. Oregon State's going to Cal. You know, USC is playing a game trying to hold off Arizona's offense. Can Arizona upset them outright as a 21-and-a-half-point underdog? Colorado's going to play again. Oregon and Washington are on a bye week, but they're preparing to play a huge football game. This is a great college football season, and it's clouded ultimately by the fact that, like, it's a book that we all love, and we're watching it, we're reading it, rather, or a, uh, it's, a, it's one of these binge-worthy TV shows on Netflix that we all stream and we watch and we're savoring it we're going oh how many more episodes are left let's just go slower let's read this page a little slower because we're watching it melt the conference is melting and it's week six going on week seven pretty soon it'll be week 10 11 and then it'll be a conference championship game and then college football will change forever in the pacific time zone it will even if there's a pack two even if they someday lure the teams back, it will be forever changed. It shouldn't have been that way. And I think it's important that we study it, learn from it. We identify the mistakes of the commissioner, horrendous mistakes in leadership from George Klyovkov. We identify the consulting firm, Doug Perlman's consulting firm. Terrible, terrible uh, mistake to hire that firm. Should have just hired one of the reputable, more experienced firms in that college media rights space. You look at the presidents and chancellors, ultimately, it's not one. It's not Taylor Randall at Utah. It's not Michael Crow at Arizona State. It's all of them. Bunch of jokers in the room, unqualified to deal with this, uh, kind of meandering around and then scattering like squirrels on the freeway in the end. When the, when the conference uh, was imploding, they all just kind of scattered. I just imagine like 10 squirrels being let loose on the middle of I-5. What would they do? Yeah, they'd all just go in different directions, freeze up in the middle lane. I mean, that's what Utah's going this way, Arizona State, Arizona going that way, Oregon and Washington going that way. It was, just, it was just, it was uh, really kind of a sad scene to watch. But I think we got to understand it. We got to learn from it. I think you can learn from it. I can learn from it. Hell, I think other conference commissioners, other sports, the schools themselves, must learn from this because you know you you, you basically had all these smart people who ended up in a stupid position. And, you know, why did it happen? It's not Taylor Randall's fault, but, man, was I surprised to find out that it wasn't Michael Crow or Kurt Schultz. It wasn't one of the presidents at Oregon or Washington. It was the guy at Utah. In Utah, nobody's happier to be in the Pac-12, or was happier to be in the Pac-12, than the University of Utah. They were dominating the conference in football. They were, uh, out, you know, it was their bridge out of the Mountain West into Power 5 football. Utah was happy. There was nothing nefarious about it. It was just a really unfortunate 
and in the end, catastrophic uh, decision to go back to ESPN at $50 million. We got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about Cal and Oregon State. In fact, our next guest is on the Cal beat. We'll get a visit, too, later in the show from Justin Wilcox, the kid from Junction City, former University of Oregon defensive back, now a head coach at Cal. He'll uh, he'll have Oregon State on his plate on Saturday. Justin Wilcox with us in the 5 o'clock hour. Anna will be here for the 5 at 5. Stephen and I are going to lock in our Pac-12 picks. We're going to talk about the NFL. What did we see? What did we see last night, Stephen? I mean, the Washington Commanders... They're being criticized as, hey, they just didn't care. They didn't show up against a really bad Chicago Bears team. What did you see? I think we learned that uh, the Washington Commanders just aren't a good team either. Like, you know, you, 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 <laughs> I think that's what we learned is, like, they're an average team. But we've also learned that, like, in the NFL, all these guys are so good, right? And, and it's such a slim uh, margin between every single team. But I think we learned that the Commanders definitely aren't on that level of, you know, competing for an NFC East championship or, you know, maybe even making noise in the playoffs. I think we learned that it was two below-average teams playing one another, and one below-average team just beat the other one really badly. Perhaps. Perhaps they didn't show up to play. I mean, the second half, I, I texted you. I thought they are the better team. Uh, I thought they'd come back and win. But if you don't have Tom Brady, it's hard to overcome that kind of halftime deficit, and they don't have Tom Brady. But uh, Magic Johnson calling the team out, part owner of the Washington Commanders, saying they didn't show up to play. That's that's about the biggest insult you can have if you're a player. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk to an insider on the Cal football beat. Are they practicing in quiet, too? I wonder. Oregon State is this week. It became a big story. We'll find out if that ticked off the Bears or if they're laughing at it and nodding. Leave it here. Well, it'll be Oregon State at Cal on Saturday. Big football game uh, for both teams, really. I think for Justin Wilcox, remember he told us on Pac-12 Media Day his goal this season uh, was to uh, win more football games and and matter more. Of course, that's what coaches want to do. And Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, they need this one. This is, I think it's five straight unranked opponents that they'll play here uh, in the next uh, five games. And so they have an opportunity, I think, to, to pad some wins onto the uh onto the schedule and figure out um figure out who they are offensively um our next guest uh, covers cal football does a hell of a job on the cal sports report jeff uh, ferrado is joining us and uh he does uh, he's nobody better on cal jeff thanks for making time hey how you guys doing today doing well give me an idea all right this oregon state story you know they practiced it they, they did it in silence you know it it made people chuckle, but I gotta know. Do you think Cal and their players? Do you think they it irked them a little bit? Well, it'll be interesting to see. I think it's more interesting to see if it motivates their crowd. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I think we can expect a crowd of about thirty five thousand thereabouts. They had a little under that last week for ASU. They had forty four thousand for Auburn, but. I think people got kind of excited about a SEC team that's never been here before. And as great as Oregon State has been the last couple of years, they're not a sexy name for, for Cal fans. It's not USC or, you know, or Washington or Oregon. So I don't know. I, I would presume that Cal, Cal's players are aware of it, but it's not really reflective on them so much as it is on the atmosphere in the crowd. It's a good point. And so, you know, I've been to games there that, 
have been lightly attended. I've been to other games there that really draw a crowd. In your mind, what does bring Cal fans to the stadium? Well, first of all, they, they need to have a good team. And I think the jury's definitely out on whether this is a good team. They're three and two, but they haven't done anything to convince me that they're a real good team. And the problem they've got right now, um, as you may know, is that they are about to begin a five-game and six-week stretch where they play five straight top 25 opponents. You mentioned Oregon State's schedule with five unranked opponents in a row. Well, Cal's just the opposite of that because they've they got Utah on the road next week. Then they have a bye. Then they have USC coming in. Then they go to Oregon. And then they have WSU coming in. And so it's a real gauntlet for them, and it's going to determine whether their season's successful. They've got three wins right now. They've still got Stanford out there. That's probably a fourth win. And they've also got UCLA, which is not going to be easy, especially in Pasadena. Cal's got to win two of those six games uh, and maybe one or two of the, of the next five. And I, I don't know where they've come from, possibly on Saturday, but I think it's a, a steep climb for Cal in this one. Yeah, and I, I do think that Cal's got a shot on Saturday because I, th- I think Oregon State's look clunky. And obviously they lose a game at Washington State. You think about you know what the home field is worth. I think Cal's got to go, hey, we've got a shot in this one. What has Cal done well in your eyes in this season? Uh, let's, let's talk about the offense first. What's gone right sure for Cal? Thing. They've run the ball very effectively. They're averaging like 212 yards a game, second in the conference. But – the next two weeks, they play the best two run defenses in the league. Uh, 67 yards a game, I think, each for Oregon State and Utah is what they're allowing. So this is a real test for their offensive line. Uh, and their offensive line has been a weakness on the team for several years now. They may be a little better this year. Uh, they're more experienced. Uh, but it's a lot of the same guys that they've had. Um, and let's see if they can do it against a run defense this good. Uh, Jade Knott has had two really big games, uh, 188 and 165, I think, in two games. Um, He got dinged up and didn't play in one game, but he's leading the conference in yards rushing per game. And Isaiah Ifante, who's a kid who they brought in from Montana State, an FCS school, uh, has been very effective as their number two guy, and he just went over 4,000 career yards at both places. Now, 3,700 of them were at Montana State, but nonetheless, he's a pretty good player. Um, and so that's been the strength of their offense, running the ball. But can they do it against these guys? Uh, and, and, of course, the other aspect of that is, is, is the quarterback, Sam Jackson, is mobile and very quick, very elusive. Um, last week he had two runs totaling 48 yards. That got called back. It looked to me like with the naked eye that the penalties were legit but didn't have anything to do with the runs. So those are real self-inflicted wounds that they can't afford against good teams. Defensively, I always look at Justin Wilcox's teams and I go, "Gosh, count on struggling to get to 24." Like you know, and you look at the numbers, four of the five opponents he's held under 21. But then there's the Washington game. What went wrong in the Washington game? Well, first of all, Washington might be the best team in the league. Washington's awfully good everywhere on the field. It looks to me like uh, Cal got way behind in that game before Washington even took the field offensively. I don't know if you remember, they had a pick six and they had a punt return for a touchdown. Washington had not run an offensive snap and they were ahead two touchdowns. So the game was kind of almost over then. Um, And and Cal did not play well. Um, And, you know, so they gave up the 59 
two of two of the touchdowns were were on the special teams and and, and the offense giving those up. But nonetheless, they just got chewed up. UW has tremendous receivers and and one of the four or five or six really good quarterbacks in the league. Their offensive line is very good. I know Oregon State is as well. Um, you know that was Cal's Cal at its worst. Um, I'm not sure we've seen Cal at its best. They're trying to sort out quarterbacks still. You know they've last week Jackson played the whole game, but that was mostly because Ben Finley, the transfer from North Carolina State, was dinged up in the Washington game and didn't didn't practice much last week, uh, so he didn't play. But he's he has practiced. Either of them or both of them could play. Uh, Fernando Mendoza, a redshirt freshman, they keep talking about how he's really impressive in practice. At some point, I'm guessing he'll get his his chance out there unless one of the other guys just steps up and seizes the job. But that hasn't happened so far. They really want it to be Jackson because he offers that dual threat uh, as a real elusive quick kid. He's got plenty of arm, but he's talked about how he's got to do better with decision-making, you know, on run-pass option stuff. Uh, At first it was they they wanted to stay in the pocket more instead of giving up on the play and, and taking off running. And now they're saying, well, Sometimes you need to run because that's what you do well. And so, you know, he's got to figure this out. It's probably a little bit in his head at this point. But um, their passing game has not been nearly good enough. And Jake Spavital, the offensive coordinator, has always had very prolific passing games. And they're ranked in the bottom, you know, third in the country in passing, even though they're in the top 20 in, in running the ball. Jeff Ferrato with us. He covers Cal football like nobody else. If you want to know what's going on, he's the co-publisher of the Cal Sports Report, writes a column, and he's been around this program. Uh, how many years have you been around Cal? Well, I covered Joe Cap. When he, not when he was playing, but when he was coaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I tell people I survived those years with Joe Cap. I was ready for anything because uh, – what was, Yeah, what was he like? He was <laughs> – virtually impossible he was charming in small doses but we had him every day and, and so the visiting reporters thought oh this guy's so cool he's got all this funny stuff to say and but he says the same stuff every day folks it's yeah you know and um i liked him on some level uh he was a ferocious competitor um the most ardent cow supporter you've ever seen um but what they should have done is they should have made joe like a figurehead, and he could have handled recruiting and, and riling up the team, and, and he hired really good assistant coaches at the beginning. A lot of NFL guys really knew what they are doing, but he drove them crazy, and one by one they left, and all of a sudden they just, you know, he, he got his fingers in too much, and he just wasn't equipped to do it. And, uh, of course, he, he recently passed away, and, and so uh, that's very sad. But he was a handful to deal with. Um, not easy, that's for sure. Jeff? The Justin Wilcox tenure, kind of at the point where he's really being evaluated, and he said at the beginning of the season, I need to win games. And he he knew he needed W's. What what does he need this season? Does he need bowl eligibility? Does he need just to show some progress? What does he need? Well, he certainly needs to show some progress, and they can do that relatively easily if they can just get to even five wins. It would be one more than last year. Um Bowl eligibility, I think, would would take that discussion off the table for another year. The thing is, I'm I'm not sure they would fire him unless, let's say, they went winless the rest of the way. They've got, as you know, all kinds of different financial 
pressures and factors and, and added on to all that is moving to the ACC next year where that's going to again cause financial woes for them. Um, and so one argument would be, well, you got to be better in football to alleviate some of those, you know, pressures. Uh, but the other argument, they have to pay off the rest of his contract and they'd have to hire another coach and, and they'd be sort of starting from scratch as they go into a new league, which is probably not what they want to do. Um, and the thing is, is that I know the, the anti-Justin Wilcox crowd will say they just keep losing games. And the, the people who support him will say, yeah, but they're in every game. And that's mostly true. They've lost a lot of close games the last three or four years. Uh, but they have, by and large, been competitive. This is not like the basketball program was the last few years, which was just a disaster. They were getting clobbered in every single game. They were not competitive. They didn't look organized. They were a mess. Uh, football has been competitive. Um, you could say they need to recruit better, and I think that's for sure, and they're having a hard time with that. Um, they get decent players, but they don't get a string of, high-end guys um, and in this league as it is right now and going forward for them they're going to have to have better players but they're also going to have to produce wins and they haven't done that um, for four years in a row now unless, unless they can turn it around and finish strong this year but like I said this is a stretch where if, if they win two of the next five it'll be an achievement because they're going to be they're nine and a half point underdogs at home this week uh, you can imagine what it's going to be at Utah, especially if Cameron Rising comes back a week from now. Uh, and then they got USC coming in. And, you know, USC gives up points, but they score at will. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm going to be surprised if he's not the coach next year. But there are there are scenarios where that could happen. Yeah, I, I look at it, and I think the contract extension probably keeps him there. And, and on the Rising front, it kind of feels to me – that they were signaling yesterday that this could be a lot longer. Uh, and, and again, we'll see. Uh, we're talking to Jeff Ferraro, who covers Cal football and uh, is better than anybody on that beat. Uh, give me an idea. The perception of Oregon State, from your vantage point, like lay it on the Oregon State fan right now. The perception of their program from outsiders is what? Which is Jonathan Smith has just had done a tremendous job there. We all know how difficult a job that has been how tough a place that is to consistently win. And what he's done is, is remarkable. They are tough defensively. They run the ball. They have a terrific offensive line. They seem to be deeper than they've been. And, and getting the Clemson kid is like a final piece. I know he hasn't played great yet, but uh, he's an improvement over what they've had. Uh, he's a big physical guy. Um, I think they're a very good team. They've got great return guys. Uh, they can hurt you in a lot of ways. Uh, I think they're averaging 35 points and giving up 16 or something. So, you know, uh, they lost the one game by three points, I think it was, to WSU on the road. The Cougars are very good. The league is. It's a crazy year, as we know, for the league to be coming apart because right. it's deeper and better than it's probably ever been. Jeff, I will see you at the stadium. I appreciate you giving us some of your time and great work, as always, on that beat. You've been there. I grew up in the Bay Area, and i I know how long you've been there and what you've done on that beat, so thanks for joining us. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure to join you anytime. All right, there he is, Jeff Ferraro, who covers Cal football. Later in the show, 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from the coach himself, Justin Wilcox. Native son in the state of Oregon, Junction City kid. 
and ask him about his dad and his brother and playing against Jonathan Smith while he was in college a couple years at Oregon State and what's it like to play for Nick Aliotti? How about that guy? You know, Nick Aliotti was his D coordinator in his last year, the Justin Wilcox last year at Oregon. Aliotti came over as the D coordinator. I'll ask him about that experience. Uh, Steven and I are going to give our picks coming up. Also, we got some punch and audio. Leave it here. Five o'clock hour. It'll be about five eighteen or so, maybe five twenty, about five eighteen when uh, Justin Wilcox joins us, the Cal football coach. Uh, we'll talk with him. We've got some big games coming up this weekend. Obviously, the Pac-12's got some teams on bye week, including Oregon and Washington, and uh, big season ahead. I think I misspoke in the uh, interview there with uh, the, our guest in the last hour. I was talking about Oregon State's schedule. I said they had unranked opponents for five weeks in a row. It's not. Well, I guess it is if you count Cal. So I guess it is five weeks. I was th- I said beyond this week there were five. After Cal, there were five weeks where they play unranked opponents. No, Cal is included in that. So it's Cal, it's UCLA, right outside the top 25, it's Arizona, it's Colorado, it's Stanford. This is the time for for Oregon State to make hay. Like, this is five in a row that they can win. They can beat Cal. They can beat UCLA at home on homecoming. They can go to Arizona and win. They can go to Colorado and win. They can go to Stanford and win. Like, Stephen, this is, this is the sweet spot of the schedule for Oregon State. Yeah, it's it's go time. If they can survive this game, and you know, it, it, I think it's going to be close. Um, you're right. This is time to get five in a row and get right back into the Pac-12 race. I mean, I I think if you went into the season saying, you know, you'd be four and one, you split the first two conference games, it's kind of understandable. You played Utah, you played at Washington State. You could see Oregon State dropping one of those games, but now you got to go. And and the toughest matchup is going to be UCLA, and you get them at home. So I'm with you. This has got to be. Big time moments out of DJ, big time moments out of that offense to put some pressure on and uh, win some games. Because it's like you said, John, there's a team with one, maybe even two losses can still get into the Pac 12 title game. So Oregon yes. State not out by any means. They just got to take care of some business. And a big difference if they do if they do win five more, which would give them six in a row with the Utah win last week, they would enter the last two weeks of the season at nine and one with Washington and Oregon on the schedule. You feel a lot better about being in that position than being eight and two or seven and three and having to play those final two games, obviously. So this is this is it. And it starts this week with Cal. And we're gonna we're gonna give our picks here. Uh and for people who want to uh, follow along with uh, week six picks, I'm having a really good season picking winners straight up. I'm forty one and four straight up. Pretty good, you know? Pretty good. But my season record against the spread is a meager 19 and 17 now. I'm at 53% winners. I have fallen under the uh, the my uh, my mark from last year at 58%. I need a bounce back week in week six. So here we go. Washington State's at UCLA. 12 o'clock Saturday. That's tomorrow. Man, I'm I keep doing that. I've been doing that all day long. Saturday, Saturday. I'm like, wait a minute. Saturday's tomorrow. 12 p.m., Pac-12 Network, UCLA is a three-and-a-half-point favorite. I have Washington State winning the game outright. I'm taking the Cougars in the points. I just think they're the better team. They played the tougher schedule. Steven, how about you? I have to bounce back and forth. I'm going to end up on UCLA in this game. Um, I do think that UCLA defense is pretty good. They'll be able to slow down Cameron Ward uh, just enough 
to to pull off the win. I think it's going to be a really close game back and forth, but I think ultimately UCLA being at home, uh, getting Washington State away from Pullman, I think they, they can handle Cam Ward just enough and get the win, uh, outlay UCLA in the points. There you go. We disagree on that one. Let's start there. Why not? If we're going to disagree, why not start with the first one? Let's see how many we disagree on. So uh, I'm uh, on the other side of that. I think Washington State wins the game as a road dog. Very unusual win, by by the way, for Pac-12 teams. Colorado's at Arizona State, 3.30, Pac-12 Network. How many people are going to tune into that game? I'll be really interested to see how much action the Colorado-Arizona State game gets. Um, Colorado, here's a danger. There's a danger in this game for the Buffs. First of all, you got Coach Prime apparently mispracticed today with a medical issue. You've got um, a low-key opponent in Arizona State. This is not Oregon. This is not USC. You have no linear like ESPN, ABC, Fox audience. You got a Pac-12 network game. Kind of wonder about Colorado's focus in this game. And if Arizona State were better, I would pick Arizona State to win at home in an upset. But I don't think they are. And so I have Colorado winning and covering the four-and-a-half-point spread. Look at you, John. Two road two road dogs. You got women outright. Well, Colorado's I, a favorite now. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wrong with that. But I'm going to take but, Arizona State. I think Arizona State wins this game. Um, we And I like Colorado. Woo! But I look at it this way, John. We You talked about this numerous times. We've talked to numerous people about this. People are going to get up for Colorado. And the fact that it's not on Fox, it's not at ESPN, all the eyes aren't on this game. Does Colorado players, do they react to that? Do they step up to the challenge? I think Arizona State, they're going to be psyched. They're going to be ready. They've played a lot better this year um, after that Oklahoma State loss, you know, almost, and Fresno State loss, you know, almost beating Cal last week. I think they're, you know, they're playing hard for Dillingham. This is a game where I think Kenny Dillingham can motivate those players at home. I think the crowd can be somewhat into it. I think Arizona State's going to want to beat Colorado. They're going to have, you know, they're going to make all the uh, all the motivational talks. I think Arizona State gets this what dub uh, over Colorado in a shocking way, and then it's going to really make it for a tough time for Colorado to get to a bowl game. Wow. We are now, um, what, we are uh, 0 for 2? Yeah. Are, are, are we're split? Are, do we call it 0 for 2, or do we just say we're split? I guess we're split on the first two. I'm two, taking, I'm taking the two, home yeah. teams, John. You've taught me well. Yeah, and home, but home favorites usually win. So I, I kind of could see your logic, you know, UCLA's at home. They're a favorite. Home favorites this season. I'll look the number up here in a second, but they usually win. But Colorado at Arizona State, I just haven't seen it from Arizona State. Well, we'll see. And no Travis, or, Hunt, no yeah. Travis Hunter still. I, I think yeah. that's going to be a problem. I don't know. I just I, I want to see an upstart. Uh, I, I think it's more the fact that I, I'm now starting to buy in a little bit more of everybody wants to beat up on Colorado, right? Like everybody wants to show up for that game and win that game. Ever since the Dan Landing speech, like you could tell the emotion in it. And I think a lot of teams are going to show up that way, especially the teams that are more towards the bottom of the Pac-12. All right. Uh, moving on to uh, to the, the next game, which is the game we've been, we've been talking about here, this, this Oregon State at Cal game, 7 o'clock Saturday, Saturday. Tomorrow on the Pac-12 Network, Jonathan Smith, Justin Wilcox against each other. Cal's a little dicey in this game. It should have beat Auburn in Week 2, lost the game 14-10. The offense has just not been consistent, and they're running into, their. They, you know, as Jeff Ferrato pointed out last segment, they've been running the ball pretty well, though, but they're running into a defense that's only allowing 67 rushing yards per game. This is a real challenge for Cal on the offensive side of the ball. It's why I don't think Cal 
I'm going to say this. I don't think Cal can get to 17 in this game. Unless they score on defense or special teams, I think they're stuck at 14 points. Oregon State beats them 24-14. I'm not trying to be a different job, but I'm going to go Cal in this game, take the points. Um, Oregon State, like you said, great rush defensive team, seventh in the nation in uh, yards per attempt on rushes. Cal, though, 18th in the nation in rush yards per attempt. So they're going to take away Oregon State's strength of running the football. Going to put the ball in DJ Uyunglele's hands. Can't make the plays downfield. Against Utah, he got some screen passes out to Bolden, got some plays. Bolden made those plays downfield. Is he going to do it again? I don't know. But then you look at you know Wilcox as a coach. Uh, you know, I still like Justin Wilcox as a coach, especially as an underdog. Uh, Cal, 11-4-1 as a home underdog under Justin Wilcox. When that spreads over a touchdown, Cal 7-1 against the spread. Uh, I'm going to take Cal plus the points. I think Oregon State's on upset alert. I think Oregon State ultimately gets the win 28-27, but I think Cal ha- Cal's live in this game. They can win this. Moving on, Arizona's at USC. I know you're just going to be opposite of me on all these games, three in a row. 7.30 tomorrow on ESPN. Late game ESPN, Arizona at USC. Trojans are great on offense. They could score points all day. They're really fun. Caleb Williams might win the Heisman Trophy again, but defensively they are porous. They're a mess. USC's a 21-and-a-half-point favorite. It's too many points for Arizona. I think Arizona can get to 28, and I think USC fails to cover. I think they win the game but fail to cover. USC 35-28. I agree with you on this one. I'm going to go home team as well. Um, I like your logic. I've heard some things that Arizona is live to win. I don't think they're going to win this game. Um, yeah. But they did show a lot, I thought, against Washington that they can score some points. And that USC defense has so many holes in it. doesn't matter how many points USC scores. They're going to be giving up points. So give me all those points for Arizona at home. Arizona at home. All right. Uh, coming up, we'll play Punch It Audio. Best sound from all around. We've got it on the show. By the way, the Big Sky, I did do a Big Sky game on my picks this week. How about this one? I picked uh, Montana-UC Davis game. I picked UC Davis over Montana, 24-23. Don't hold me to that. Don't count it against my record either. Great weather out there. Steven, you looking out the window? Oh, I am definitely looking out the window. Blue skies. You had a birthday. Was it your birthday yesterday? Was your kid's birthday? No, it was uh, my oldest son's ninth birthday, Lincoln, yesterday. What'd you guys do? That's a that's a great birthday. Nine years old, man. Yeah, no. Uh, so we you know we gave him some presents in the morning when he woke us up at six in the morning. Um, hey, wait, wait, wait. He woke you up? Yeah, he came into the room, jumped on the beds, like, hey, let's go downstairs and open some presents. I'm like, eh, you can just do it by yourself. <laughs> but no, I, so you know what? Uh, you know, I had the day off. I took it off to hang out with him for a little bit in the morning. Then I picked him up at school. Um, then we went to Wonderland, the arcade. Oh, yeah. With uh, him and one of his friends, and then my youngest as well came with us. And then we went home, had some cake, uh, went to soccer practice, came home, and my parents came over. It was just a, you know one big party for him the whole day. What a great What's Tell us something about Lincoln that we don't know. Um, so he's super into sports cards right now. Like he just loves cards. I kind of got him into it, and so that's kind of all he really wanted for his birthday was cards or video games. So, like, anything sports, he's just so into um, soccer, like he loves playing soccer right now. So that that's just kind of what he is uh, super into right now. What is like when kids now? Because when I used to go collect cards, I'd ride my bike, I'd buy a pack of like 1985 tops baseball cards, um, and uh, that you know I'd ride miles to get a pack of cards. What what are kids now? What's he collecting? Well, 
So he he's more into basketball cards. So I think he likes basketball okay. the best out of everything. Um, he tries to get into football just because football's on, you know, at our house sometimes, and he just he just can't really get into it. So uh, it's mostly just basketball stuff. But the card game has changed so much, John, from when you know you were a kid and then I was a kid as well. You know, I collected them when I was a kid back in the '90s. The game has changed a lot. It, it would take hours for me to explain how how different it is now. But you know, I'm yeah. starting to learn how it how it's going down. And he, you know, he's so smart and he can figure it out before I can. So. Uh, it's just different. Yeah, he'll buy packs. He buy, you know, we got him a couple of uh, like boxes of, you know, boxes with like five packs in it. So yeah, he, he had a good day. And the and their packs are not cheap, are they? No, not anymore. They are <laughs> a uh, arm and a leg. That's why I'm working today, not taking the day off. Yeah, I the thing I noted that was different because you know these card companies will say we want kids to collect, and we're after young collectors, and it's cool. But then you go into the card shops, and you know, they're like a pack of cards could be twelve bucks, twenty five bucks. Like I'm like, whoa. Yeah, no, it's definitely not marketed to kids. Like it's it's for grownups. It's for people. I feel like my age who collected it in the '90s when it was really popular, and then we had kids, and now we're trying to get our kids into it. Like I feel like that's really what it's marketed to. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's a little weird to see all these grown men like you know collecting. Uh, Whatever it is. Like, even Pokemon cards. I, I see grown-ups doing that. I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. I also will tell people that grading has become uh, a big deal, and there are several grading companies. You know, there's Beckett, which is born from the James Beckett, uh, you know, Beckett sports cards uh, magazine that used to come out, and, and now, you know, they do grading, too. And then there's, there's uh, SGA, and then there's uh, PSA, which is – I think known as like the more premium end grader and, you know, and depending on the grade that the card gets, which card it is, what grade it gets, it becomes more and more valuable. And of course, like as you go back into vintage cards, you find that from about 1981 to about 1995, there was just garbage produced. It, and probably was your childhood. It was yeah. my my yeah. childhood. Yeah. They just mass produced the cards, and so unless you have like a really rare card in ten mint ten condition, gem mint condition, you probably got a lot of nonsense. And I found that out. And what was really valuable, what has really become valuable to me, and are the vintage cards. The you know I had some vintage cards. I got them graded, and it's fun to see them come back graded. But it takes sometimes it takes months to get the cards back. Yeah, hundred like, percent. No, it does, and it and it costs an arm and a leg to get them yes. graded too. It's not it's not cheap to get those things graded, especially from PSA, like you said, which is the yep. uh, the most you know I guess uh, prestigious one. That, that's pretty so, expensive. Yeah, I, I had like complete sets that I put together in the eighties and in, in in the mid to late eighties, and I worked really hard as like a fifteen sixteen year old kid buying packs, getting the sets, trading, putting these sets together. Very proud of them. Then come to find out, like, you know, they're probably not worth anything except for a couple of cards in the sets. And by the way, take those cards out and go get them graded. So I did, and you're right. Like, you send them away, even when they're having specials on the grading, it could still be 12 or 15 or $25 to get the card graded. And, you know, if the card's not worth 50 to to $100, it's probably not worth getting it graded. So you'd have most of your cards not graded, and then, you know, so it's really discouraging. But... The vintage cards, like I had, I had some old, old cards from the 1950s and whatever that, that are really worth something, and I'm like proud to have those. But I'm like, man, I was wasting my time as a teenager. I should have just been like buying one vintage card, 
for 20 bucks instead of buying all those packs at a dollar a piece. But it's, but it's the unknown, John. It's the ripping of it. There's no there's no other better feeling than that. And you know that. Know. Like, it's just, oh, man, I could get yeah. something really good even though you know you're not going to get anything good. And now these things are like, you know, they're like lottery tickets. Oh, it's, it's, it's like, gambling like Wonka. is what it is. Yeah. It's Wonka. You know, can you get a golden ticket? And you open up. I saw a kid on social media the other day who was opening up Pokemon cards. And he got the he got the uh, rainbow Charizard card. Okay, he was crying. Kid was crying like he was shaking and crying. Like you know, and uh, every parent wants that reaction when their kid opens a present. But he was shaking and crying. But uh, good for Lincoln. Well, we'll have to chip in and get Lincoln something. What's his favorite uh, kind of card? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll buy him a couple of packs and send him send him his. Way. Yeah, well, uh, I'll figure that out for you. Find I... out what he want. What's he chasing? Like what's the what's his golden. Rainbow Charizard card. Right now, he has a couple Anthony Simons rookie cards, which he loves. So I think it would probably be like a really nice Shade and Sharp rookie card. You know, he's in okay. the Blazers. So I think that would be the one that uh, would be really good for him. Nice. We'll see what we can dig up. All right, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Cal's defensive coordinator is Peter Sermon. Peter Sermon was asked if Oregon runs a throwback offense. Here's what he said, Punch. Well, I don't know if they're uh, 70s, 80s, 90s quite that. Uh, they do a great job of implementing uh, a lot of different personnel groupings. And sometimes when we think of big personnel groupings, uh, we get nostalgic. Uh, you know, we, we reflect on, uh, you know, having multiple tight ends or multiple fullbacks uh, in the game as the uh, the way it used to be played. Uh, they they kind of, in my mind, they can kind of live in both worlds. Uh, they can go big. They can put... Uh, multiple tight ends on the field. If they want to um, build some 21 personnel, they have the capacity of doing that. Because the more personnel grouping somebody presents, uh, the more contingencies and the more uh, formations you have to account for. I find a lot of similarities with Oregon State's offensive scheme and what the 49ers are running. It's all play action. There's a little misdirection. You know, I don't think that Oregon State's got a Debo Samuel, but it's got a Silas Bolden outside. And it's got an Anthony Gould. And, you know, there's not a George Kittle, but there's, you know, they've got Velling. So, I, you know, I think those key players, that's what you look for. It's, it's a good running back. It's a quarterback who can deliver and make some of the throws. Doesn't have to make them all. But Oregon State's going to try to run the ball and play defense. And that's as old-fashioned as it gets. But I don't think they'll mind being called old-fashioned if they can just continue to win games. What is it that DJ has to do better going into this week? And is Aiden Childs, in your opinion, going to get some get some PT this week? I, you know, I, I was, think excited, gets, I was yeah. excited to see him against Utah. Um, he got the one series, and then it probably should take him out like he did. But I, I want to see him get more. I, I don't care about yeah. the red shirt. I, I think he will play a little more. I'd like to see him get maybe two series this game. Because I think ultimately what you want is you want you want to mix him in here and there and get a change of pace. And he's different. He's a different quarterback than than DJ. And and on the DJ front, here's what he needs. He needs to not turn the ball over. No turnovers for DJ. He needs to be clean that way. He needs to throw a touchdown pass. Okay? And he needs to have his completion percentage, I think, be really healthy for what they give him. They don't give him a lot of down-the-field shots. But I would like to see him around 60% completion percentage 
no turnovers and a touchdown. Because that tells me he'll have 250 yards. He'll have it'll be enough to win, especially against Cal. You're right about the the downfield shots. I, I was expecting more of that this season. We haven't really seen much of it. We saw it against you know San Jose State in Week One, but. Ever since then, John, we haven't really seen many of those downfield shots. I was hoping for a little more out of those at a DJ. They like him. It's interesting. I, you know, this is just my observation. They like him between the hashes, and they like him like between seven and eighteen yards down the field. And so he tends to throw. Uh, and this is where I think he gets in a little trouble, or he gets a ball tipped, or if he doesn't, if he doesn't throw an accurate pass, there's a lot of traffic in there. And so I do think he's had a couple of interceptions where he's been high on a throw or the ball gets tipped and suddenly there's a, there's you know there's a safety there's a linebacker in there you know and so I would just I would like to see them try to throw the ball a little more down the field a little more to the outside of the field and get you know get their playmakers in position but he's got Silas Bolden he's got Anthony Gould he's got Velling at tight end got the running backs out of the backfield that seems to be the game plan Travis Kelsey Responding to Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers called Travis Kelsey Mr. Pfizer. (laughs) Because Aaron Rodgers, by the way, plays for a team owned by Woody Johnson from Johnson & Johnson. So Aaron Rodgers calling him Mr. Pfizer. Here's Travis Kelsey's response. Punch it. (laughs) I thought it was pretty good. I mean, with the stash right now, I look like a guy named Mr. Pfizer. Um, Who knew knew I'd get into the Vax Wars with Aaron Rodgers, man? (laughs) Mr. Pfizer versus uh, the Johnson & Johnson family over there, man. I mean, I've always been, you know, once I got the vaccine, and I I got it because of, uh, you know, keeping myself safe, keeping my family safe, uh, the people in this building. Um, so, yeah, I stand by 1,000%. Uh, fully comfortable with him calling me Mr. Pfizer. It's a tough position to be put in because you don't want to, like, you know, who wants to open up the debate over vaccines? I don't want to I don't want to debate that with anybody. It's, you know, it's the worst debate ever. So, Kelsey, I thought, handled this as well as he could. He is, though, you know, he's a spokesperson for Pfizer in their commercials. So I think he's got to be able to uh, take some of this. Dick Butkus passed away. Chris Berman said it well here. Here's Berman talking about Butkus. Punch it. Look, Ray Nitschke, Jack Lambert, these are all intimidators. Nobody intimidated more the opposing team just by looking across the line of scrimmage than Dick Butkus. This was the most important position without a doubt in the era that he played, 60s, 70s. Yes, a fierce defensive end, you know, a Deacon Jones back in that time, etc. But there is none that would make others shudder as much as Dick Butkus. And I, I, I am sure that anyone that played against him or played in that time would agree with what I just said. Love how Chris Berman talking about Butkus. Good stuff from there. Uh, Butkus, I will not think of the Chicago Bears without thinking about him or Walter Payton, really. You can talk Gale Sayers or George Hallis all you want, but it's sweetness on the offensive side of the ball for me, and it's Butkus on defense. Kirk Herbstreet talking about Caleb Williams. Could Caleb Williams actually stay in college next season? I bet Lincoln Riley hopes so. Punch it. I don't know. We live in such a new world. He said five teams. What is it? Who do you say? Vegas and Dallas and San Fran and I can't remember the teams. I, I've never heard anybody come out and just say that. You know, but that's that's kind of where we are now. I, I, who are we to not believe that? 
Last time I checked, though, teams trade up, right? I mean, teams trade to get to that number one spot to get their opportunity to take a Caleb Williams. So, I mean, it's it's hard to say if you go by the end of the season, you know, hey, Carolina has the first pick or the Bears have the first pick. And for him to potentially pull himself out and say, I'm going to stay at SC, we'd love that in the college game um, because he's so much fun to watch. But I, I'd be surprised if that ended up happening. But I have no idea what he makes at SC. you, you got to believe it's pretty good. Um, but uh, think about just the idea of NIL yeah, but putting a player in a position to think about staying in college because he doesn't want to go to one of these terrible franchises in his mind. Yeah, look, uh, he doesn't want to go to the, one of these terrible franchises, but the bad franchises are going to be drafting every year. I just think this is, for now, a premature conversation brought up in part because Caleb Williams' dad is talking about it and also presented by NIL. Caleb Williams can make money. He can make four, five, six million dollars by staying in college at USC. So not the worst thing, but gosh, I would be eager to get to the NFL, but I guess it does depend who's going to have the number one pick. Who's going to pick him, Stephen? Who's going to be sitting there at one with the worst record in the NFL or maybe needing a quarterback? Uh, I mean, maybe Arizona, even though they've been a little feisty this year. I think Arizona has a legitimate chance to be that first team. Um, and I, I don't know if he'd want to go there, right? Like, they've been a historically terrible franchise. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm with you, John. I don't buy it. I don't buy it right now. I know that he doesn't want to go to some of these teams, but I feel like he's just trying to posture, right? Like, he's just trying to, you know, cause some things, maybe see what he can get for NIL. But you're always trying to get to that second contract in professional sports. So why waste a year of being in college? Get the one year in the NFL, and you're one year closer to getting that max payday. Cardinals, maybe. Could the Bears have the one pick? Would they be ready to move on from Justin Fields, who's four or now five and twenty-four as a starter? Not yet. Maybe. But if you're Caleb Williams. Do you want to go to Chicago? Like that would, I wouldn't want to go to Chicago, but people have talked about the New York Giants. Could you know? Could they end up with the worst record or maybe the highest team that needs a quarterback? Because you know, if Carolina's sitting there with the one pick, is Carolina going to take him, or are they going to say, hey, we made the right choice last year? I think they would be looking to move that pick, and they might be able to get a lot for it. Like, if you're <laughs> Carolina, you're, you want that first pick and get a lot of draft pick back, because Caleb is that guy, right? He's the guy that everyone wants in the NFL. Well, it's like Neuheisel said, that, you know, we played his clip this week, and he said, you can't afford not to take Caleb Williams. So if you're Carolina and you're sitting there with a one pick, and you have Bryce Young, do you uh, would you be tempted to take Caleb Williams? I mean, I guess, and then look to trade Bryce Young. I, yeah. I mean, you're, whatever whatever your decision is, you're Carolina. You're What's in the money the there. Yeah. What's the market? How about Denver? What if it's Denver? Minnesota. I wouldn't want to go there if I were here. I, I, if I'm Minnesota Caleb was Williams. one of the teams, though, the five teams that Kirk was talking about. Minnesota was in there that he mentioned. Gosh. See what happens. I think it is premature, though. Dan Lanning, talking about his job. Did, it's his first job, Oregon football coach. Like I, I keep having to remind myself that. And he's got a long-term deal, and he's winning games. Is it possible that Dan Lanning could be one of those guys that only coaches at one college in his career? Think about that. 
He's talking about it here. Punch it. You know, you never think that your first job as a head coach could also be your last job as a head coach, <laughs> right? And for me, it's just, you know, the excitement of knowing, like, no, this is a top 10 team. This is, like, the best of the best. And blessed and fortunate, I've been around a lot of great coaches. I've got to work for a lot of great coaches. But for this to be my first opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to be in this set. Yeah, he's lucky to be there. You know, that we've we've seen coaches leave Oregon. Chip Kelly, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal. We've seen them leave Oregon and it not go well after they leave. Or it not be as easy. Let's just say that, to be fair. I wonder if Dan Lanning has paid attention to that and gone, hey, you know what? This is a pretty good job. You've got support. You've got resources. You've got Nike. He was in the Pac-12, will be in the Big Ten. Maybe it's a different conversation there. I don't know. But the contract extension that Lanning got, I talked to him on the day it went down. He said, it gives me and my family a chance to exhale and know that we're going to be here a while. And that was the first time in my mind that I went, you know, those kids of him, those, those three boys that he's got, who have bounced around from different elementary schools, different cities, different preschools. His wife, Sophia, who has unpacked boxes, packed boxes. I think he worked in like seven different places in 11 years. They finally get a chance to go, okay, we're going to be here a while. Let's make some friendships. It's all that stuff that Drew Holiday's wife was talking about. Hey, we're people too. I don't totally agree with that whole stance, by the way, but we'll talk about that later. Anna's got that in her 5 at 5. But I, I get it. Like, the, there are other people involved. Dan Lanning could be Oregon's guy for the next seven to ten years. Let's just say that. I mean, realistically, if you're Dan Lanning, where else better can you go? Right? Like, at Oregon, it's nine, ten wins basically as, like, the, the floor every single season. And you're getting Nike. You're getting all the recruits. Like, yeah, it's a tough job. There's some, you know, expectations, but... You got a shot to make the playoff every single season with Oregon. Like you don't have to change much. So I, I, I'm with you. Lanning seems like, as far as Lanning's been the head coach, he has said all the right things for Duck fans. Civil war in football in big jeopardy. How about in basketball? Dana Altman was asked about it. Will Oregon and Oregon State continue to play each other? Here's Altman. Punch it. You know, Wayne and I'll talk, um, and and see what works out best for us, but. Uh, no, I, I think we should play Oregon State. It'll it'll be a big game for us, uh, November, December, whenever we decide to, to play it. Um, but you know, I don't have any plans of not playing them. I hope Wayne feels the same way. We really haven't directly talked about it, um, but um, you know, I I sure hope that you know we'll play them either in November or December each year and and go from there. Look, I think uh, this is going to take some logistical work. I also think that there's some bad feelings on the Oregon State side of the rivalry. Same as the Apple Cup. Some bad feelings on the Washington State side. So I think some time needs to pass. Programs are going to play each other this year. Game's going to get played this year. And then a conversation will have to be had because it does, to me, feel like these two programs should be playing home and home. Games don't need to all be at Oregon. They don't need to all be at Oregon State. But they need to be playing home-and-home home basketball games. They need to be playing baseball series against each other. The uh, coaches and the athletic directors are going to have to rise above what just happened. 
and they're going to have to figure out a way to make this work. They should. I think not just because it's right for their schools, not just because it's right for the athletes and the coaches and the programs, but because it's right by the fans and the two fan bases who should not have to travel all over the place to see an in-state rivalry that has you know, been 100-plus years of existence. Should happen. Leave it here. Anna's in the studio. She's uh, got her 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour. Excited to see what you do with that. Um, I'm going to throw a stat at you, Anna, and you tell me what you make of this. I'm so good with numbers. I just looked this up. Uh, home favorites in the Pac-12, 25-1 and one this season as far as wins and losses, winning the football game. Home favorites are 25-1. and one. What do you think that means? Home favorites, that means they... Per, like predominantly win, but when they're at home, <laughs> right? Twenty-five home, to one home favorites. Like they win a lot at home and they no. don't lose as often at home. No, spot home, on. That was home, very literal. Of hundred uh, percent. Yeah, she was trying. Home favorite means a team that's favored in the point spread, and then also they're at home. Oh, so like Oregon. Last week was at st- playing at Stanford and they were favored. Uh-huh. That's not a home favorite. That's a road favorite. Okay. Okay. Oh, got it. So, like, an example of a home favorite this week. Uh-huh. Like, let me uh, quickly pull up uh, what Stephen and I were talking about. <laughs> like, this is sports no, talk for dummies. No, but I think, I think I, I, when I, we say it on the show, I want to make sure everybody understands what yeah. we're talking about. UCLA is a great example. Okay. So, UCLA is at home this week against Washington State. Mm-hmm. And they are? Favored. Favorite. They're favored by three and a half points. They are a home favorite. Okay. Home favorites this year, 25 and one. And that means? Winning the game. Ah. Doesn't mean that they cover the spread, just that the home favorites tend to win the game. Yeah. In the Pac-12. Okay. That doesn't bode well for Washington State. It doesn't bode well for my pick of Washington yeah. State winning that game outright. Uh-huh. Do you know the only home team that was favored that didn't win this year in the Pac-12? Steven, do you know it off the top of your head without looking it up? No. I'm trying to think, but no, I have to think more. It's a bad team. They're favored at home early in the year, and they in lost. A, in an in-conference game? No. Just a home. Okay. They were favored against a – in fact, it was Arizona a non-conference State. game. No, it was Stanford, which mm-hmm. lost as a home favorite against Sacramento State. That's right. Stanford's the only team this year – to lose a home game as a favorite. Aren't you proud of me for asking a, yeah. a decent question there? I was. But I, the reason I asked you is because I just throw mm-hmm. stuff like that out all yeah, the time. I know. And I want to make sure for people who are listening, they're like, I don't know what a home favorite is. Yeah. There's probably 30 other things that you could throw out there and like have a glossary of definitions. Because well, a lot it, of the time you and Stephen are talking here and I'm like nodding enthusiastically. Well, it was like when we played the Jeopardy <laughs> clip the other day. Yeah. And the the one thing was, you know, you the signal that you make, wave in your hand to s- signal that you want to catch the ball and you can't be tackled. Yeah. And you didn't know what it was. Yeah. It's fair catch. Right. That so one. I think there's a lot of fair catch moments that mm-hmm. pop up in this show. And I know for damn sure that when you and your friends are talking, there are a lot of fair catch moments in your conversations. I over here, I have no idea what you're really? talking about. Oh, wow. Or you're talking uh, in Mandarin. Well, yeah. 
I mean, come on. There's quite a bit I don't get <laughs> when you're talking to your dad or your aunt. Although I am impressed with what you're able to decipher just based on the intonations and the hand gestures. Now, like, you... a lot of times you'll figure out what we're talking about, even though I know, like, phonetically yeah. you do not know what we're talking we, about. We were out at, at a restaurant, Stephen, and Anna's dad, he used to work at a bakery, okay? For how many years did he work at a bakery? 22 years. 22 years, he worked at two different resorts in Hawaii. Yeah. Baking pastries for tourists, right? Uh-huh. Pretty much. Yeah. Croissants, muffins. Yeah. Donuts. All that stuff at the, the breakfast scones. buffet that you just take for granted. My yeah. dad was baking those. So we got him over here. We move him over here. And, of course, here comes breakfast at our house. <laughs> and I'm looking around like, what the hell? Where's the scones? Where's the croissant? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and he's like, we're like, why don't you bake something? And he's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> he actually said, I hate baking. He doesn't like <laughs> baking. Yes. Who knew? I get it. I get it. I, I thought, you, know? you, you, you thought your dad was coming to live with us. I thought we were getting scones. Well, it's the episode of Seinfeld when Jerry dates the masseuse. Like, he just wants to get a massage <laughs> from her. And she's yeah. like, no, like, I'm not going to give you a massage. It's not what like, I do. Yeah, that's that's his job. I get that it. That was like 60% of why he was dating her, right? Yeah, like, he just Maybe wanted anymore. to get the massage. Kramer was getting massages from her, and he's like, you can't get him anymore. But Anna's dad, we're out, at, we're out at a restaurant, and it was one of those restaurants that brings a basket of bread to the table. Yeah. And it's, it's like, warm. It's got a little cloth napkin. It's all <laughs> folded over the top, and... I watched him, and he reached in, and he suddenly his eyebrows went up, <laughs> and it, and then he came. His hand emerged from the basket, cupping a uh, little white dinner roll, and he examined it, and he took a bite of it, and then said something in Mandarin to Anna, and I said, "Your dad loves the bread," and she says, "Yes. How did you know?" <laughs> and he was declaring. That this was what? What it was well done? This he was had, yeah. He has this habit of making like superfluous statements, like really extreme declarations. Which so I, which I like. His declaration was this is the best bread I've ever eaten. Okay. And he said it <laughs> kind of matter of factly and like leaning back in his chair. And then I, I I later I pressed him on it and he said it had to do with the fact that the outside of the bread was crispy and the inside was doughy and soft. And I was like, that. that's difficult to do, to get that outside <laughs> texture just right. And only a baker would know that. But your dad makes other declarations. Like, you know, we took him to the Oregon State uh, football game against Utah. And he said it was the greatest thing ever. Like, this is the greatest game I've ever, uh, football that's ever been played. Yeah. And then he said, nowhere in Taiwan would you get 40,000 people all cooperating together he called it cooperating how the fans kind of yeah. did the chants together yes. he said cooperating i thought that was an interesting term and then he has on multiple occasions he has declared me to be perfect or yeah, or Steven. Steven, he'll say he'll point at me and he'll just go number one yeah that's gotta feel good <laughs> i do yeah. declare you were number one yeah. mm -hmm. you just pass him like in the hallway yeah and he'll just look at me and go number one I mean, like a lot need... of a lot of in-laws would not say that about no. their, uh, you know, <laughs> that person. So congratulations on that one. Or yeah. you, like you should see Anna's face when he declares me perfect. Oh yeah, I... 
Yeah. Just yeah, so annoyed, I'm in I full imagine. support of that. This goes perfect. You're perfect. We need another person telling John how great he is. Thank you. Continue. <laughs> Go on. Let me learn. I might learn. I might learn Mandarin. He's just trying just to get to some airtime. That's all he's trying to do. Just to hear the rest of this, of this uh, conversation that we're having. Um, uh, I digress. So Anna, great yes. weather day today. I'm sure kids it's are hot. It's actually hot. Oh, come on. It's hot. It's the kind of weather that people aren't expecting at this time of year. Because, like, you know, in the morning you're wearing a sweater and then you're just having to strip off the layers as the day goes on. And it got so warm this afternoon that there were people that I was witness to, and I might have also said it myself, saying, whoa, it's hot. Like, too hot. You can't be that person. I have turned into that person. Man, I, I think if you're somebody who complains about the heat, you can't complain when it rains. I know. Or if you complain about the rain, you can't. You can only complain in one season. I have become that, like, classic Oregon weak sauce. I am only comfortable within a three-degree range person. It's really kind of sad. Well, I'm sure your uh, relatives that are visiting, and we'll talk about them more later, but relatives that are visiting uh, are happy with the weather and enjoying it. And yeah. So that's that's all good. Um, pivoting back to sports for a moment, if I might, there was a comment that was made today by Brian Kelly, the LSU coach. Okay. Okay. You know Columbia Sportswear. Yes. Right? You know Columbia Sportswear and the jackets and why all the news crews have the Columbia jackets. Like, Can you explain yeah. that to people? Well, uh, Gert Boyle, smartly, years and years ago, uh, decided that it would be a smart thing to give out a lot of Columbia jackets, for example, to news stations in town that have reporters who are constantly outdoors covering bad weather. It was like, well, here, take these Columbia sportswear jackets and wear them. And uh, it was brilliant. It was good marketing by her. Didn't cost the stations anything as far as I know. And she got, uh, you know, a lot of airtime of the Columbia sportswear logo on the TVs. Brilliant marketing. Okay. Well, LSU's heading to go play uh, Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Okay. On Saturday. And Brian Kelly, the the LSU coach, well, he had this to say. Good. All right. We'll see you in Columbia. Bring your Columbia jackets. It was a joke. Does he not know where <laughs> Columbia Sportswear is not from Columbia, Missouri. That's hilarious. Hey, they'll take it. If Columbia's smart, they'll just snag that right now Tim, and play that up. Tim Boyle, did you hear that? <laughs> That's so funny. Send those jackets right over. I don't know, though. He's Tim Boyle's an Oregon guy. Yeah. You know, he, he he's a big donor at Portland State. And, oh. you know, Columbia tends to take care of the Northwest. Yeah. So I don't know if he would be sending jackets for the LSU coaching staff or whatnot. Well, no, but they can take that clip and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, we are not in Columbia, Missouri. Is <laughs> with the, what was yeah. the joke? I don't understand what he's even play, talking about. Play it again. Let's fight. Let's, sometimes people aren't funny. People who aren't funny try to make jokes. It's it's not bad. Good. All right, we'll see you in Columbia. Bring your Columbia jackets. It was a joke. It's bad. Somebody says it's bad. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. I mean, nothing yeah. that makes sense. Isn't that one of those things where, like, we've talked about this, how there's people that are in high-profile positions like that, head coaches, uh, you find it a lot with politicians, 
business people where they are so used to being the center of attention in a room that they will crack a joke yeah. and they will garner more laughter and response than what is really warranted just because of who they are. And if they assume that position for long enough, they crack jokes all the time that a normal, reasonable yeah. audience would not find it's, funny. I think athletes benefit from that, too. Yeah. They say things that are kind of chuckle funny. Yeah. And everybody laughs <laughs> a little, yeah, yeah, little yeah. harder. Yeah, yeah. Because, oh, they're an athlete, and that's a funny, kind of a funny thing they might have said. Right. There's just a little extra that goes on there, and then they retire, and they find out people aren't laughing as hard anymore. Yeah. Do you think that ha that's us? Do you think we're not funny, but we think we're funny? I don't, I don't care. Oh, shoot, Steven. <laughs> Dig it. Ed McMahon over there. Here's my thing. I don't care. Yeah, you don't I, care? I really don't I care. I kind of care. You do. Like, if I'm not funny, but I think I'm funny, that's really obnoxious. I don't know if I'm funny. I just do what I do. And I often find you laugh at me when I'm not trying to be funny. Yeah, but I'm your wife, so that doesn't No, count. but when I'm not trying to be funny. Oh, well, that's when you're funniest is when you're not actually trying to be funny. You know? So yeah. I think that's part of it. That Brian Kelly's not a funny person. He's not? No. I don't know anything about him. No. He's, He's not a funny really person. He's really kind of serious guys so that's as close as he can tell to a joke and fortunately no one in the room laughed and somebody actually said that that was a bad it joke. was a cornball joke so, how yeah. long did he how long did it take for him to think of that joke too uh, it was something like he came into the press conference thinking yeah. i'm gonna say this at the end and really get him you think so yeah. i think I felt impromptu I, I think somebody else said it Mm. on his staff. He was a language stealer and he thought oh that's a good one i'll stay i'll take that one and use it on the news conference uh-huh and then, because it's almost like, if you just listen, he's done. And he's like, looking around, is there another question? Like, he goes the kind of, all right, watch, listen. Good. All right, we'll see you in Columbia. Bring your Columbia jackets. It was a joke. <laughs> Nobody laughed. You're laughing at the fact that nobody laughed. Nobody You're laughed. You're not laughing at what he no, said. No, he wasn't funny. It's crickets. Because it tells me a couple things. He's ignorant. He doesn't know that Columbia... Well, that's okay, but... I mean, that's okay. But he's drawing like a... Uh, it's not even a pun. He's drawing a parallel between Columbia, Missouri, and Columbia Jackets. Like, you know, what grade are we in, Brian? But I bet that happens to Columbia sportswear, though. Because people, again, you know, west of, oh, I don't know, Idaho have no idea that the Columbia River is up here in the Pacific Northwest. Or that Columbia Sportswear was founded here. Yeah. And Tim Boyle's father, yeah. Gert Boyle's husband, founded it, and it was a hat company. Yeah. And they were making hats, and they almost went bankrupt. And then the banker told him, you got about two more months before you're going to go bankrupt. And, uh, you, you know, you go talk to this other guy. He has some ideas about how to source better materials and make it cheaper. They were making everything right here in the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, Gert Boyle sat down with Phil Knight and he said, here's what we're doing in China and Asian countries, sourcing materials and making our products cheaper. And it saved Columbia Sportswear. Isn't that interesting? Phil Knight helped save Columbia. Got it. Gets an assist there. Yeah. But uh, two very different companies. Like, you know, it, I've been over at Columbia. I, I had lunch with Tim Boyle at, at Columbia not too long ago. I went over, just he went to have lunch with him, just have a conversation. Yeah. We actually ate lunch. Like, it was a real lunch. We sat down. He had a sandwich. I had a sandwich. 
we sat in like the boardroom just talking. And I find, I told him, I said, somebody needs to make a movie about your life and your family and Gert Boyle and, you know, the break-in and all that, you know, the yeah. attempted kidnapping. And, you know, it's just such a good story. How she had the wherewithal, at her age especially, to silently notify the police and tell the intruders in the home invasion that she was just turning her home alarm off, but instead was secretly like contacting authorities to come and rescue her. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. One tough mother. Yeah. yeah. Talk and about living. How about when motto. the police came in and uh, <laughs> she's at the uh, table having a glass of whiskey? You know, they came in to oh, like interview her, <laughs> and and the guy <sighs> walked in he, and he had on a Nike jacket, oh. and she told him to get the hell out of her house. There <laughs> <laughs> so you go. All right, leave it here. You got the BFT. I'm going to issue a formal complaint with Amazon. We just got an Amazon delivery. It's a big box. You know how they send a photo, Stephen? They give you a photo of it? Yeah. Okay, we have... You've seen the front of our house. Like, we've got, like, 20 steps up the front of the house. And, 22. Okay, 22 steps up the front of the house. The Amazon driver put it on the third step. Well, how... Okay, how big was the package? It's it's a fair, it's a bag of dog food so it's, in, a, so, in a box. So it's, like, yeah. 30 pounds? Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame him then. Yeah, he just went, nope. <laughs> Give it up. At least it wasn't at the very bottom. Like, he thought about it. He's like, oh, no, nah, three <laughs> steps in. Uh, that's good enough for me. What he might do is just take it to the neighbor's house. Oops. They don't have as many steps. Um, hey, you uh, you mentioned uh, during the commercial break that uh, you, or last segment, you guys went to the arcade. Yes. Wonderland. Yeah, we did. How did that go? Yeah, you know, it went good. Um, you know, won a lot of tickets. I'm really good at arcade games, what I found. But uh, my youngest, John, he uh, he's super into stuffed animals. He's four years old, uh, loves the stuffed animals. So I, I you know, I played the nice. crane machine, won, won this dog, Ooh. won this dog for him. So excited. Uh, we get home, you know, Later on in the night, my parents came over, and they're like, oh, what'd you name him? Because he names them all. You know, usually it's just like dog or cat or whatever. <laughs> but he goes, he said John. And, I, and then <laughs> and then my parents were like, it. oh, hey, John. Yeah, Johnny. He goes, no, John John Canzano. John Canzano. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't know if I like that name. But, uh, name. It, you know, it, it is what it is. Like, because, you know, my wife, when they when he, she picks up the kids, you know, I think she's listening to the show. Like, yeah. sometimes when she gets home with the kids, she'll have the show on when she's, you know, cooking dinner or doing whatever. So, like, he hears the name John Canzano, and he does that before. Like, he's very, uh, very, very smart when it comes to those type of things with, like, movie lines and names. Paying attention. He pays attention. And so, I don't know. I was hoping he just would change it to Johnny or something. But Mm-mm. now it's like anytime he sees him, he's like, hey, Dad, here's John Canzano. And I'm Take like, care oh. of that dog. As if, <laughs> as if you don't have enough John Canzano in your work life. You I have know. to deal with that no, at got, your dinner table? No, I got to deal with it at home. Like he's snuggling with it and he's like, hey, John Canzano's <laughs> sniffing you now. It's like, no, don't tell me John this. Canzano. Oh, man. <laughs> Look, uh, well, you have to take a picture of that dog for me. I will. I'll take it. I'll send it to you. Put it in my wallet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to <laughs> see this thing. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a cute it's a cute little dog. You know. That's great. That's a good story. But, you know, I like it. It does say you're a dog, though, John. So oh, in, in a good way, though. I've okay. been called worse, worse <laughs> things than that. But he's not the one celebrating a birthday today. No, no, that, no, no. The oldest one did not have a dog and did not name it John Canzano. So you, he, you're, fa- you got the four-year-old fans. Here's the problem I had. Yesterday on my phone, I got an alert that popped up said it was Stephen's birthday. Really? 
I said, happy birthday to Steven. He says, it's not my birthday. <laughs> he says, it's my son's birthday. Okay. Why is that popping up on my phone? I don't know. I think my phone was probably uh, reading my emails when they oh, said wow. Steven was going to be off because of his son's birthday. Oh. So Steven and his birthday got put together, and my phone went, eh, it's Steven's birthday. My phone's drunk. <laughs> and, by the way. Happy birthday to your oldest happy son. Happy birthday to Lincoln. Yeah, he's, he's um, excited. Uh, did you guys hear what Al Michaels said? I want to play this clip. Okay, it's kind of gross. Is it true that you have never knowingly eaten a vegetable in your life? That is true. That is true. I was born when my parents were 18. My mother hadn't even read Dr. Spock at that point. So she just let me have the, the, the run of the, uh, of the course. And uh, I always push the vegetables away. To this day, no. And I guess what I've proven, Chris, is that man does not need vegetables to survive. But is it, is it just possible that you would like, I'm thinking of one of the more non-objectionable vegetables, a carrot? Oh, please. please. A carrot? No, a carrot. No, that's an objectionable vegetable. I mean, I would, really? What? I mean, how would you know? You've never tasted it. I look at it. I just don't even like the look of it. <laughs> and I surmise what it might taste like in terms of the texture of it. I think a lot of it probably has to do with, it just doesn't look like something that would go down well. There you go. You've got uh you got Al Michaels talking about vegetables. Anna, your reaction to that? I call BS. I just don't I just don't think it's true. I think he said it at one point cuz I've heard him say this before and I think he realized that like, once you say that, you just got to stick with it. So I think he's just sticking with it at this point. And also disgusting. Like, how yeah. does he go to the bathroom? But he says... How is he not all stopped up with no veggies at all in his system? So mom Here's right my now. thing. Like, he he's saying he's proven that man does not need vegetables sur to survive. I would argue, you know, maybe he could have been Vin Scully. Maybe <laughs> he could have been Bob Costas or Keith Jackson. He's only Al Michaels. Because he didn't eat vegetables. You know what I mean? Like, he, you know, might have been two inches taller and a little better at his job. Do you Who believe knows? it? I, I do because I had a former co-worker when I was working at the Fresno Bee a few stops ago. I had a uh, co-worker who uh, also would not eat vegetables. To the point where when he would order a burger, he would order it with no lettuce, no tomatoes, no onions, no ketchup. And would just eat it plain. And I always had that same conversation, like, hey, I don't mean to get personal, but when you go to the bathroom, <laughs> is this, like, how uh, how fraught with risk is that for you? <laughs> and he said he's fine. That he would just take supplements and he didn't feel the need to eat vegetables. What he is, didn't like them. What does knowingly mean? He did, has never knowingly eaten a vegetable? Like, no. people are shocked him. And what did he mean by, it doesn't look like something that would go down well. Like, does he not chew his food? <laughs> like, I don't... Yeah, like, if you don't chew a carrot, it's going to be tough. But, like, you chew your food. Like, you chew it, and then it goes down fine. His stock is dropping with me ever since he got on Amazon. Yeah. On Thursday nights. It's, yeah. uh, he's not as he's not quite been as good. Uh -huh. He's been a little negative on the air, and now he's not eating vegetables. You're telling me he's never had a French fry? That's see, that's well, crap. The, yeah, just depends what he counts. Maybe he's not counting that as a vegetable. You know, it's based on a potato. 
Yeah, but maybe he's counting that as, like, that's another classification. I don't know. <laughs> Coming up to 5 at 5, plus Justin Wilcox, Cal football coach, joins us. Leave it here. Just a beautiful, it's one of those beautiful Northwest days out there today. I just want I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to acknowledge how nice it is out there, and I think you should as well. If you haven't yet mentally noticed how nice it is outside, for all of us that complain about the weather, we bitch and moan about the rain, we complain that it's too wet, even though everything is green and beautiful and people who are visiting say uh, nice things about us because of it. Uh, maybe this is the kind of day where you take a moment to go, hey, this is why I live here. I say that all the time. Anna's obviously in the studio here for the 5 at 5. You've got an aunt who is visiting from Taiwan. You've been taking her all over the state of Oregon. Before we get into the 5 at 5, what has that been like for uh, you being tour guide to a couple of Taiwanese visitors? Anybody who lives here knows that you pray and hope that if you have people visiting from out of the area, that the time that they are here, especially at a time in October, uh, that you hope that it's nice, that it's just not that it's just not downpouring. I was just happy to see that the forecast was not going to be totally cruddy, and you're walking around going, "This is Oregon," and it turns out we've really lucked out this week, and so I uh, have appreciated so much. I feel like. The Pacific Northwest has just kind of been showing off this week with its uh, fall colors. We've done the whole thing, all the things. If you live here, you know. There's there's certain spots that you just have to hit if people have never been to Oregon. I've done the Gorge Loop, Multnomah Falls, the Fish Hatchery. Yes, we saw Herman the Surgeon. We did Skamania Lodge. Came back, hit Crown Point, Vista House on the way back. Did the Japanese garden yesterday, drove him up to Timberline Lodge, showed him Trillium Lake. I don't know what else I'm missing, but uh, I've been a really, really good tour guide this week and thankful that the weather has held up. Is there pressure on you when you have, you know, you have your, your mother's sister, Dolio, who is visiting and her friend that is visiting with her? And is there pressure to um, show them everything in a short period of time? Like, because yeah, you did, you pretty much have shown. Everybody, everything, and they're going to see the Willamette River today. But like, you know, give me an idea of the amount of pressure. And is there an equivalent? Like, if 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 we go to Taiwan, are they are we going to see like how big is the island? Yeah, we could probably hit the island pretty quick because it's not that big. The pressure's internal for me, and it comes from growing up here and being so proud and like knowing how much we have to offer. Like, that's the thing. It's like. I have so many different options to show them around and like show off this is where we live and this is why we live here. And for me, it's a blast because like these are incredible destinations to show them. And uh, I just I feel fortunate. It's one of those weeks where I'm like, man, this is why we live here. I just absolutely love it. You know, I'm just more in love with uh, our region than I ever have been. Without further ado, we're going to get into the five biggest stories in sports. Anna gives us the five, five at five, five, five. The five at five. All right, number one, Deion Sanders dealing with a medical issue. He was under the weather yesterday. He had a bad reaction to medication. He had to skip his radio show. But uh, Colorado says he is okay. Uh, He... I guess, was not feeling good. 
They didn't really add many details about this to the Denver Post, but they're just saying that he's fine. You know, obviously we know that he's had a few health issues. Uh, he had two toes on his right foot amputated. We've seen him limping because of that. But uh, sounds like he is good to go and is well enough to travel with his team for their game tomorrow against Arizona State. Big game for them against Arizona State. And by the way, he's got eight toes and a radio show. Wow. Like, hey, uh, the Arizona State game is important for, for Colorado because if they're going to get to bowl eligibility in six wins and go play in the Peach Bowl or whoever's going to take them because there's going to be a bowl game that is going to step out of line and go, hey, we want Colorado in our game because it's going to bring massive eyeballs. You watch what happens during bowl season. If they can get to bowl eligibility, they're going to have to get there by beating teams like Arizona State and Stanford and Arizona. Those are three games on the upcoming schedule that Colorado, I think, has to have if they're going to be bowl eligible. They don't get those games, they're going to have to surprise somebody. And, and you know, they have to find a win against Oregon State or Utah, somebody late in the year that I don't have them beating. The number two story, as you see it. Pass rusher Randy Gregory with the Denver Broncos. We all thought that he would be released, but instead of being released, uh, the Broncos have traded him to the 49ers. Uh, Denver will get him, uh, Denver in exchange will get San Francisco's sixth round draft pick in 2024 and a seventh round pick in 24. And uh, it's interesting. Like this is an interesting trade to me because the 49ers are doing well, right? Am I right about that? Like this is a good trade for him personally. Is he going to be a Super Bowl contender? Look, it's it's a good move for him. It's a good move for the Niners. There's some salary implications, and of course, you have to wonder how how he fits. Um, you know, they went from releasing him to making him a free agent to oh, wait a minute, we're going to trade him. Um, and uh, you know, whether they get a sixth round pick or a seventh round pick, looks like they're getting two picks uh, in the sixth and seventh round. Uh, whether you know the Niners just didn't—they knew he wouldn't clear waivers, they knew he wouldn't get to them, and so they were willing to give up a draft pick to get him. Broncos are going to pick up about 10 million of his salary. Three years left on his contract, but none of it's guaranteed after this season. So I think it's a good move for the Niners. It's a good move for Gregory if he fits. And that's a big question. He's got to fit in with them. They're not going to change for him. Number three story, as you see it. Uh, the Chicago Bears went into Thursday night with a just a 14-game losing streak. That is the longest active streak in the league and, and in team history. But uh, the Washington Commanders allowed the visiting Bears to explode out to a 17-0 lead, and uh, ultimately it did not end well. And uh, Magic Johnson, who I didn't know, is a limited owner of the Commanders. He is ripping the team. He's saying that they played with no intensity or fire. Uh, he's saying that we didn't compete in the first half and got down 27-3, and Leading into halftime, too big of a hole to climb out of, and that is why we ended up losing 40-20. to 20. I didn't know. I guess I missed along the way that this was one of the investments that he had uh, acquired over the years. I actually thought Washington was going to come back and win this game in the second half. There was you know, about nine minutes left. They had the ball. They were down by just two scores. But I think Magic's right. Like You can't build that kind of deficit at halftime in the NFL, at least and scramble back out of it unless you got Tom Brady on your side. You have to be almost perfect in the second half, and Washington wasn't. Uh, I, I like, too, when former athletes 
are owners. They'll say things that the other guy owners won't say. And they'll criticize athletes in a way that other owners won't. And I just kind of wonder how he would have responded had, you know, Jerry Buss or whoever uh, owned an NBA team he might hypothetically play for today, how he would respond being criticized by an owner in that way, but basically calling him out. And there's there's not much worse you can say about an athlete that you didn't show up to work. You didn't show up to play. You didn't have it. What is this, number four? Number four. Number, th- I thought, no, no. What it, go through what you went through because you had Randy Gregory, you had Magic Johnson. This is number four, your first story. Yeah, this is four. I'm right. I'm right. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yes, I am your credible source of news, but I can't count to five. <sighs> okay, Colin Kaepernick. Um, it looks like he might have two options if he wants to go back to playing football, but he doesn't seem interested. So one option that has been talked about in recent weeks is, you know, The Rock partially owning the XFL and saying that they've met with Cap and his agents and that it was a good meeting and looked to create an opportunity for him, but he doesn't think it will happen. So Cap doesn't seem like he's very interested in the XFL. The second option would be to return to football in Canada. The Vancouver, B.C. Lions have added Kaepernick to their negotiation list, but it doesn't seem like he has any interest in going up north either. Like he's holding out for some kind of return to the NFL, especially with that letter that he wrote to the Jets. Well, you can see what he's doing. There's there's risk in him going to the CFL. If he doesn't succeed there, people are going to say, you weren't good enough to play in the NFL, go away. If he doesn't succeed in the XFL or the USFL or whatever uh, you know league pops up, they're always going to say you weren't good enough to be in the NFL. And so, he, you know, he's he's got to stand his ground here and say uh, he has two choices. I either has to stand his ground and say it's the NFL or it's nothing. I'll just be a martyr for the rest of my life, or he has to take a really risky bet on himself. So I see what Kaepernick's doing here because if he goes to Canada or the XFL and it doesn't work out, he loses like the next. 30 or 40 years of his life in in the fact that he could sit back and always say that, hey, it was the NFL, it was collusion, they boxed me out because of my beliefs. So I think he's playing a strategy game here. I'm not saying it's what I would do. I'm more of a bet-on-myself guy. But if he really wants to play football, there's some places for him to go play football. But for now, Colin Kaepernick apparently putting the pressure still on the NFL. I would love to see him get into a camp. Let's see what he can do. See if he can prove himself in the NFL. Like, somebody, you talk about television ratings? Colin Kaepernick gets an opportunity to play quarterback for the Jets or anyone else? You don't think everybody's tuning in to see whether you're rooting for him or against him? Just tune in to see, can the guy still play? I like it. Okay, number five. Five. Yes, I'm confident about five. I'm curious what you think about this. So, Drew Holiday, who was a blazer for like 60 seconds, uh, his wife is sharing a little bit about what the experience is like for their family. She's emphasizing the human element of her husband being traded. So in this offseason, he was traded from the Bucks to the Blazers. We know that. But then Portland traded him to the Celtics. His wife, who, by the way, has 236,000 followers on Instagram, says there's a human element that she wants people to know. She's saying that it's had an impact on their family, who had a deep connection to Milwaukee, She says, I'm not sharing this to say we're entitled to anything. I'm sharing this to say we are human beings 
whose kids develop friendships with other kids in our community. We are people who value family and friendships, and we invest in the cities we play in. So, yes, this is more than business, not because we're offended by it, but because we are people, humans, have relationships, dreams, and a connection to the people, uh, you know, where we play. What do you think of this? Because I am going to go off, but I want to know, good move by her, not a good move by her. Is there an element to this that bothers you? You tell me first. I get what she's saying. I get that, you know, like, he woke up from a nap to figure out that he had been traded away from the Bucks. Like, I get it. But I also think to myself, like, and, and I get the aspect of being a mom and your kids making friends and stuff. Like, we heard that kind of stuff with Mario Cristobal when he left Oregon to go to back to Florida. But to me, I kind of look at this and I go, well, okay, I get it. It's hard, but this is kind of what you signed up for. Like, you married somebody who, like, I think, I don't know what their marriage history is, but presumably she knew she, he was going to go to the NBA, and this is the business. Like, players get traded, and I, I like, you, you signed up for this. Drew Holiday's on a $135 million contract. Okay, let's start there. I'm glad she said, I'm not in this to sound entitled or whatever she said. Because uh, she does sound a little bit entitled. It, you, there is an element that is human to this. And I get that. I think we all get it. It's hard for fans when players leave teams. And the fans aren't being paid $135 million. Uh, fans woke up from a nap to find out Damian Lillard was traded. Or, or fans in Milwaukee woke up to find out Drew Holiday was traded. And the jersey that they bought for their kid would no longer be good. And they'd have to go out and maybe buy another jersey. I get it. It's hard. Mario Cristobal's kids made friends with... People in Eugene, I heard from those parents who said this is really hard. We went through it with Taggart. We went through it with Halfridge. Yeah, I understand there's a human element to it. It just falls flat for me in the end because I think he. this is your job. This is part of your job, and if it's that painful, don't do it. it this is part of the job. We all have parts of our job we don't like. This is an unfortunate part of the job for Drew Holiday and his wife. Coming up. Justin Wilcox, Cal football coach, Oregon-born Justin Wilcox. He's next. Oregon State traveling to Berkeley on Saturday. That's tomorrow. Man, this week went really fast. Uh, Justin Wilcox, Cal coach, here to talk about the game. Do you have weeks like that where you look up and go, oh, man, it's Friday already? Or is everything so regimented that you truly know what day it is if I ask you at any given moment? Yeah, we're kind of in a routine from August until, you know, February, so... Uh, the days are, are long, uh, but the weeks go by quickly. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how it feels. That's like raising kids. People say that about kids. Long, <laughs> long days, quick years. Um, before we get into too deep into the football, um, you know, I want to just ask you about growing up in the state of Oregon, playing against Jonathan Smith in 1998. You're going to see him on the other side of the field. I think it's one of the coolest uh, matchups for that reason. Yeah, uh, man. Love growing up up there. I'm a Junction City native, and uh, man, it's awesome. And uh, fond, fond memories of being from there, growing up there. I went to a lot of games as a as a kid, um, and saw you know some great players in the in the Pac-10 at that time, and uh, just enjoyed every minute of it. And had a chance to go play at, at Oregon. Made uh, just lifelong friends. It was. It was awesome, and uh, my family, 
bunch of them still live up there and uh, enjoy getting back and seeing them. But uh, playing against Jonathan, we played against each other for a couple years, and once up there, and it, I think it's a double or double overtime, triple, something like that. And then we played him my, my senior year, we played him at home and split with him, I think. And he's a re- really good coach. I've known him a long time and ton of respect for him and the, the entire staff there. So it's, uh, you know what you're going to get when you play those guys, and uh, it'll be a battle. Did you have any sense when you were playing? Because I know you had your dad, and there's a lot of family history that, you know, you guys had been around football. But did you have a sense that you would be a coach one day? And, you know, because I, I don't know. I think Jonathan probably knew it because he was that kind of kid as a quarterback. Yeah, you know, uh, not necessarily. Uh, I went through college and was kind of playing and going to school and doing that whole thing. As I approached maybe late in my career, my last year, I would say, is when I – thought about it and probably because of the people I had been around um, you know Bob Gregory being one Bob Foster uh, coach Aliotti and uh, coach Pete was on the staff there and those guys when I saw how they coached and how they worked with the players and the energy they brought I thought oh that looks enjoyable because there were some other folks along the way that I don't know that I would have really inspired me to, to coach my high school coaches certainly did um, but I think it was my late in my career. I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll give this a whirl. And, and uh, I talked to a few people about it, and ended up getting hooked up with Coach Hawk over at uh, Boise State yeah. to, to get going. It's so interesting to see all you know. He's at UC Davis now, and he, Aliotti listens to this show. He's picking up. He's headed to the golf course, headed back. He tunes into the show, and I will often get a text message from him during the show with his game prediction or or whatnot. What was Aliotti like to play for? Oh, he was intense. Uh, so he came in my senior year. He was the D coordinator, and uh, Coach Gregory, Bob Gregory, was the secondary coach. And so, uh, yeah, they're they're great. I mean, Coach Aliotti was intense. I just remember every Thursday, like he would be the most stressed out that he would be the entire week. And us as players, like we had, you know, we'd prepare all week, and Thursday was like, okay, that was our day to tune up everything. We're feeling good about the game plan, and we'd go to practice, and he'd be all stressed out about this route or that route. It's like, oh, man, I was confident until he just <laughs> told me how worried he was about this route. So now I'm like, I guess I'm going to worry about it. But I used to give him a hard time about that. But, no, he was awesome. He had great energy, and we loved playing for him. He would come into the postgame news conference after a big win, angrier than anybody that I've ever seen after a big win. He was always nitpicking something. You know, if it was a close win, he was in a great mood. But, it, like, a big blowout win, not good enough. The backups were sloppy. You know, always something to work on to kind of readjust the focus. And I kind of wondered, you know, even even at his age, have you ever tried to get him to come consult with you or be one of those guys who comes in during fall camp and works with your guys? He would all – well, for a number of years he would come down because his family's from down here, and he'd stop by practice and hang out for the day. Oh, for sure, yeah. But it was more kind of – just, uh, you know, he, and here's Coach Aliotti, because I know exactly what you're saying. After with him during the season, like he was, you know, into it. You couldn't ever get a hold of him. He'd never call anybody back because he was so focused. And, you know, coaching defense, you don't get to punt. He would tell you that. So, like, every game, even <laughs> you could play great, but the three plays you didn't, you know, don't feel good. But these days, now he's got time on his hands. And if, 
if I don't call him or text him right back, he starts giving me a guilt trip. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, woe is me. You don't call me back. And it's like, right. well, hold on a second. You know, for 25 <laughs> or 30 years, you never called anybody for four months, and now I don't call you back in 20 minutes, and you, you know, he gives me the sob story. So anyway, I mean, he'll probably be texting you about that. Yeah, no, but, he's probably listening right now. I'll get a text yeah, right no, now. <laughs> but I love him, and I, I, I try to get back to him as fast as I can because he's, he's the best. Uh, we're talking to Justin Wilcox, Cal football coach. They'll play Oregon State tomorrow. You guys have been really good defensively, uh, you know, outside of maybe the Washington game. Uh, really good defensively, and you know I know personnel has something to do with that. But give me an idea of do you do you feel sound on defense this season? Do you feel like you're getting transfer from practice to games by and large? Uh, yeah, not quite. To be honest with you, um, we've kind of we've been. Real kind of hit and miss, Jekyll and Hyde on defense uh, throughout the year. Uh, obviously, the game at Washington, we played terrible everywhere uh, and got our ass kicked. But uh, we bounced back and had some good moments last week on defense, and then we had three plays that I gave up 120 yards and 10 points. And if we hadn't have done that, then, shoot, we're going to play really pretty good. Same thing in the Auburn game. You know, we played pretty good but had a couple plays that really hurt us. So we just need to be – you know, do routine things and not make uh, easy things hard. And if we do that, then I think we'll have a, a shot to play pretty good. Yeah, I picked you to beat Auburn. I was I was so mad that game. I'm not as mad as you were probably after the game, but I was like, that 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 was a game you guys should have had. That was one you that you know you probably look back at the end of the season can't afford to look now. Uh, offensively, uh, better in the past game. I, I I see improvement. What do you see? Yeah, I think we just got to be uh, we got to create some more explosives, and we we got to be. Uh, improved in the past game more consistently. Uh, the run game has been pretty good. We're going to have a different kind of test uh, against the Beavs. We know that they're excellent run defense. They're really physical, and then we're going to have to we're going to have to uh, make it count when we throw the ball. Um, you know, so we'll find out kind of where we are. Yeah, we got to be balanced and we got to be efficient, like everybody says. But it's true. Uh, so if we can do that and protect it, then we'll have a chance to play good. And we're going to have to play good to, to beat the Bees, and uh, it's going to be a heck of a game. I watched their game on Friday against Utah really close. I was down near the sideline for most of the game, and it was very physical. And, you know, those two teams were just like – it was like a quarry, and they were moving boulders around the stadium. What When you look at the film of that game, what did you see at the line of scrimmage? Yeah, I think that physicality. They're big and physical up front. I think their O-line is so dang good. Um they're veteran. They know how to play. They're good players. Um, then, obviously, the way their offense operates, running the ball with two great backs. you got DJ doing his thing. they got speed. Um, so they do a really good job with that. And then defensively, really aggressive. You know, they got their big up front. Their front seven's very active. They get negative plays, uh, and they will contest everything in the back end. You know, they're not going to – they're going to get up and, and challenge your receivers, and then you gotta you got to win some one-on-ones. And uh, – so it'll be a great test for, for all of our guys, both sides of the ball. And uh, it, like I said before, it, it'll be a battle. That story about Oregon State shutting off the music during practice to, to simulate how quiet it'll be or flat it might be in the stadium. Did your guys take that personally? Oh, I don't know. We don't really uh, get too involved with all that stuff. What we need to take uh, personally is our play. And uh, so going out and playing really good football, that's what we're concerned with. Yeah, and I think you often will see NBA players, some coaches, that will always look for bulletin board material. You're not that guy. Yeah, I, I kind of feel, you know, if it, if it helps somebody get ready uh, and gives them added motivation, you know, more power to them. I just, 
I've always felt, felt like uh, intrinsic motivation, uh, you know, it, that's probably more important to long-term success than always looking for something extrinsic because at some point there might not be any bulletin board material mm-hmm. or somebody might not say something to challenge you. Uh, so it's got to come from inside, and you have to want to be good because you want it, and it's important to you, and not because somebody said you can't do something. So if it helps them, great. But again, I don't know that it's hard. Uh, I don't know that it's sustainable uh, to be successful at anything if you're always, you know, counting on some ex- extrinsic motivator. Yeah, you're you're right about that. Justin Wilcox with us, Cal coach. Uh, the the Pac-12 from the twenty thousand foot view, you have six ranked teams, uh, a lot of good football being played. A lot of eyeballs on this conference. It's killing me that this is the last year of the conference. And I know you can't afford to think about that stuff because you're coaching week to week. But as a kid who, you know, your dad played in this conference, you, your brother, you, this, the, 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 what has happened to the Pac-12? In the back of your mind, are you savoring it all this last season, or can you afford to do that? Um, I think, you know, <laughs> You're literally every, each and every week is such a battle, and you mentioned how good the conference is this year. I don't know. It's hard to compare years, but this is as good as it's been in a long, long, long time in terms of the talent from top to bottom and the quality of the teams. Um, I don't know about savoring it. It's obviously uh, – I mean, the whole thing is is uh, really disappointing, and it's uh, it should not have happened. It's kind of shameful, and, you know, one of these days we could talk about that and go into depth on, you know – why or you know what are the reasons for that because there are reasons but uh, right now as you mentioned like we're so focused on football that's all I can be focused on because the team deserves uh, my and our full attention did the conversations with recruits change as you you know you're you got a conference to go to you're not in a position like Oregon State and Washington State right now but has that conversation changed at all or are you still recruiting a kid that fits Cal academically and fits your program culturally uh I would say a little bit um but it certainly, you know, it certainly helped um, being able to uh, get into the ACC was big, and those the the recruiting conversations that were everybody was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen there for a little while. You know, coaches, players, administrators, everybody, and obviously recruits. So you can't blame them. But um, I would say there's been a small change, but uh, certainly still looking for people that you know are going to fit in here, that qualify here, and all, all those things. That hasn't changed. When you are game planning for Oregon State, from a defensive standpoint, my mind wants to go to, you know, you stop the run first, but they're a little different with DJ at quarterback this year. And so what do you see on film, you know, and you, are you a guy who tries to take away the opponent's strength, or how do you approach that philosophically? Yeah, I think you do, but there's got to be um, kind of a balance in, you know, if you're going to say, well, we're going to take away the run, and that means you're going to just, you know, zero blitz them every down, I don't know that you're, that'd be real smart for us to do that. You know, some, but maybe not all the time. So I think there's some, some give and take. And, you know, finding ways to – got to find ways to get them behind the chains. They're so good at staying on schedule and uh, not getting themselves in a bad situation. So how do, you, how do you get them behind the chains? And then you mentioned it, DJ um, – He's a big guy. He can throw the ball, and he can run the ball. I don't know. You know, people probably don't give him enough credit for what he's doing running the ball on some critical downs to get him first downs or get him into the end zone. I thought early in their game, they ran him on what looked like a little delay or a little trap up the middle, and he kind of cut back against the grain. And I, I thought that was a really nice way to, 
you know, to keep the defense honest or give them one more thing to think about. That play on film, you probably broke that down and looked at it. What were they trying to do there? Yeah, um, it, yeah, design quarterback runs, and it is, uh, it's, a, it's a great scheme because now you're 11 on 11. I mean, anytime the quarterback's a threat to the, run the ball, you know, it changes how you have to fit things because you, you're not plus one in the run game anymore. And so um, doing that, uh, obviously, they, they make you account for him, and you've also got to do some things up front where guys have to get off a block. You have to win a one-on-one, um, you know, at the first or second level and, and make a tackle because you're not always going to have two-on-ones everywhere in the run game, in coverage. And I think when it boils down to it, this game is won uh, in football. The great teams win one-on-one battles more often than not. And so that's the challenge they present when they when they run the guy like that. I, you know, we talked in July uh, about the passing of your dad. Your dad passed away in April. Oregon grad, uh, NFL player, pro bowler, all-pro, seven pro bowls, Hall of Fame. What was it like for you to have a dad who is on the caliber of Pro Football Hall of Fame? And, you know, did you wear the gold jacket? Like, does, did he have that hanging around the house, you know? Uh, yeah, um, those are things that he did. And, um, like, that's his resume as a football player, and it's, it's such an impressive resume. But I guess for me, you know, I, I was proud of him, and I wanted him to enjoy the uh, – you know, the recognition, but it really didn't change anything uh, in our relationship. I mean, he was just a, a great father and a role model, and and whether he had a, a gold jacket or a blue jacket or whatever, yeah. like I, you know, he had a Levi jacket for a long time until he got a gold one. Um, you know, he was just a, such a great dad and role model and try to emulate all that I learned from him, and um, I miss him every day, and it's, it's rough as – those who have lost uh, fathers and mothers uh, can attest it's it's a life-changing deal. But um, I don't know that, you know, it didn't didn't really revolve around football. We happened to be associated with it, and that was cool and really neat. But uh, And I'm, I'm proud of him for all that he accomplished. But like I said, it, uh, that, that was something he did. And, and uh, you know, the fruits of his labors were, were recognized. But when it comes down to it, he was, he was just my father. Give me an idea, those father-son trips with you and Josh and your dad. What kinds of things did you do as a kid? Oh, well, Josh was kind of like the complainer, you know. So he, he would lead the charge in complaining about the distance of the trip or, or what was on the radio. Because I don't know, my dad wasn't like a huge Metallica fan. So if Josh would have the headphones on and anyway, no, it was. <laughs> It was great. I mean, um, we had a lot of, I would say we, we weren't a big traveling group, um, so we didn't do a lot of family trips. I mean, I guess we'd kind of go to football games or, mm. you know, but we spent a lot of time in Junction City. There was not a lot of uh, luxury trips around the world. Uh, I don't think, uh, my dad was not really into that. So, uh, but it was awesome. Um, you know, we had good times together and and some, some other moments that, you know, things would get a little heated, but uh, as it goes for siblings. Yeah, but you know, you have a dad that was, he showed up for you, didn't he? I mean, he was he there, sure, yeah. whether it was for school or whatever you were interested in, he was around. Yeah, that's the number one lesson that we got, is just you got to be involved in something, and when you're involved, you don't quit, and you give it your best effort, and yeah, whether we were playing at Glide, 
you know, on a Thursday night in a JV basketball game, he would be there and uh, wouldn't say anything. He'd sit in the corner, but he was always there. So he, he showed up for us for sure. All right, Justin, I will see you at the stadium. I'm looking forward to seeing this game. I think it's going to be great. I think it'll be a really physical game and a fun game to see, and uh, I wish you the best. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. There he goes, Justin Wilcox. Dad's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He and his brother Josh played at Oregon. Justin now at Cal, where he has been for several years. Now, remember, he told us on Pac-12 Media Day that what was important this season for Cal football, do you guys remember what he said? He said, we got to win some games. Cal has won some games. They look better to me. They beat Arizona State last week, 24-21. They had a, uh, a really disappointing effort against Washington, but I think Washington's doing that to people. Gave up uh, a 50-burger there. But Cal's 3-2 and two this season. Probably should be 4-1. and one. They should have won the Auburn game. They're at home on the Pac-12 Network tomorrow, 7 o'clock, against number 15, Oregon State. I want you to leave it here. Some parting thoughts coming up. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Well, I had a piece today at johnconzano.com that I want you to check out. If you are a subscriber, you got it in real time. You received it the minute I hit publish. It popped into your email inbox. You probably read it at your convenience. If you're not, you can go online to johnconzano.com and check it out. Uh, I think it's an important piece if you're a Pac-12 fan or somebody who cares about Oregon, Washington, Oregon State, Washington State, or whoever. Uh, It is titled, The Truth Behind the Pac-12's Misfire. Now, we've talked a lot about the Pac-12 conference getting that offer of $30 million per school for its media rights uh, uh, you know, uh, negotiations last fall. ESPN wanted to end the negotiation early. They wanted to do it without competition. So they, they said $30 million per school will get it done, which actually ends up being a pretty fair number when you look at where everybody ended up, what Oregon got, what Washington got, what Colorado and Utah and everybody else are getting, and $30 million would have done it. And maybe they could have negotiated a little more had they come back more reasonably. But the Pac-12 conference counteroffer, as I've reported, was $50 million, which is kind of like going to a garage sale and walking up and seeing something that is, uh, you know, for sale for, uh, let's just say it's for sale for uh, $30, and you offer $5. The person's just going to roll their eyes. They're not even going to answer you. Say a little bit reverse negotiation there. Uh, but the Pac-12 And sources in the Pac-12 told me and told others that there was a lone president that was pushing for the $50 million valuation. Now, this weeks and weeks and weeks I heard this. And I have been chasing this like crazy, and I told you that I was going to get this, and I got it. I finally got the answer as to who that president was and what in the world that president was thinking. The president was Taylor Randall. University of Utah, and that may that's going to surprise some people. I know people thought it was Michael Crow at Arizona State, who is the long-standing senior member of the Pac-12 CEO group, and uh, a little bit out to uh, out in left field sometimes. Or I know that they thought it might be Kirk Schultz at Washington State, who fashions himself um, an expert on sports and media. But no, it was Utah's president Taylor Randall, and. I'll step back here a little bit. It makes a little bit of sense at face value because, you know, Taylor Randall is a business guy. He has a doctorate in business, worked as a professor of economics 
in accounting on campus at Utah, ran the university's business school, served as a consultant for uh, General Motors and DuPont. Like, this is a guy who knew business. In fact, I'm told that Taylor Randall tried to get into the negotiations, wanted to participate in the actual media rights negotiations for the Pac-12, and that wasn't a terrible idea. It would have given the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors at least a voice in the room, some eyes and ears in the room. You know, as, as we know now, George Klyovkov had kind of, you know, pulled that circle of trust down to just himself and the uh, consulting team that he had hired. And in the end, um, Taylor Randall was told, no, you can't be in on the negotiations. But, you know, I, I got in touch with Taylor Randall. I had a conversation with him. It was productive. He, um, he agreed to give him a statement, basically trying to give the thinking, his line of thinking, why he arrived around $50 million. Um, he believed that the actual valuation for the conference media rights, he told me, was somewhere between 40 and $45 million, and most people thought they were in that range as well. I'll tell you why they thought that in a minute here, but I was told by another president in the conference that $50 million was supposed to be a negotiation. It wasn't supposed to be take your ball and go home type of scenario. And so there are a lot of bad feelings still with the Pac-12 presidents about how that offer was conveyed to ESPN. Because they believe that the conference commissioner, George Klyovkov, and his consulting team did a poor job of conveying that offer. But why were they thinking $50 million? That's a big question, right? Like, how do you arrive at a $50 million valuation if you're the Pac-12 conference? Well, I'm being told by Taylor Randall and other presidents in the Pac-12, a variety of presidents, president at Washington, among other places, that they arrived in that position because... They were looking over at their Big Ten counterparts. And remember what happened in the summer of 2022 when UCLA and USC were leaving for the Big Ten? We were told that that Big Ten deal was worth $80 million and then $100 million per school annually. So the, the, the rationale that the Pac-12 was using was it was trying to base its own value off the Big Ten being worth, is it worth 70 is it worth 80 is it worth $100 million? We're getting offered $30 million. The quote I got from one Pac-12 president was, quote, nobody was up for $30 million, end quote, after seeing what the Big Ten was getting. But it turns out that the Big Ten figures were inflated, right? Remember, Kevin Warren left, and then it's, the deal started to unravel. And by the time December hit, and this is after the Pac-12 had counteroffered, the UCLA contingent that testified to the UC Regents testified that their distribution would be about 62.5 million per year in the first year and then 65 million in the second year and so there was a crash there that occurred there was also an economic downturn that happened and ESPN Disney Apple Amazon everybody started laying people off amid that economic downturn so you had a, you know an inflated valuation of what the Big Ten was worth that skewed the Pac-12 at least initially you had, uh, you had a bad economy. You had a, uh, a, a circle of trust that was too small. Not enough qualified people and presidents and chancellors in the room able to see what was happening as it was going sideways. And then you had sports media advisors, the consulting firm that the Pac-12 hired, operated by a guy named Doug Perlman, friend of George Klyovkov from law school, 
that sports media advisors had a good reputation, but it had no reputation and no very little experience. Shouldn't say no experience, but very little experience negotiating college media rights deals. Complete systemic failure. Sports media advisors never should have been hired as the Pac-12's media rights consulting firm. Never should have been hired. They should have went with a firm that had experience and probably could have been more tuned into what the Big Ten was actually getting. You had Klyovkov as commissioner making $3.6 million a year. Part of his job is to manage the boardroom, his bosses. Survival of the conference should have been on his mind with every move. And when they told him, take the $50 million counteroffer back to ESPN, George Klyovkov should have pushed back. He's not a messenger. He's the commissioner. Failure of leadership right there. Further, you've got the presidents and chancellors. For some reason, we're sitting around waiting for UCLA. I was told that even in December, they believed UCLA was coming back. And they thought $50 million was the number that UCLA needed to hear in order to come back. Now, UCLA would have added 10 to 15% to the media rights deal. And so what the Pac-12 was thinking was that they would give UCLA a bigger share of the media rights money. They'd give them $50 million. And then, you know, even if they settled in the 40 to $45 million range, they would give UCLA 50, everybody else would take less, but there was a problem. There was some concern inside the Pac-12 CEO group that giving UCLA 50 million would cause Oregon to just go, hell, we're out of here, we're going to the Big Ten, we'll take their place. We'll, we'll go take what, they're, what they were supposed to get because we should be getting 50 million too. So there was a real incentive to not come back at like 33 million, 35 million, 38 million. They needed to get that number up in the 40s in order to justify giving Oregon, Washington, UCLA, and whoever else they were trying to get back into the fold or keep in the fold, uh, give them more money. There was a looming problem there. And, and bad timing with the economic downturn and the media industry with the layoffs and the cutbacks. But, man, I, read all about it at johnconzano.com. Uh, I spent days and days and days and days and days on this piece. And uh, I think if you're somebody who cares about the Pac-12, you're really going to be into reading it and finding out what happened. And again, here comes this college football season, as you just heard Justin Wilcox talk about in the last segment. You've got this college football season coming. You got three teams ranked in the top ten: Washington, Oregon, USC. Washington State's at 13, still undefeated. Oregon State and Utah both ranked, both with one loss. They're all in play to potentially get to the playoff. Like you know, I'd bet against Utah with their injuries and. You know, the, the undefeated teams have a better path than the one-loss teams. But they're all in play. And then you have Colorado drawing 7 million-plus viewers on a weekend and manufacturing all kinds of hysteria around college football. It's just the product's not the problem, which is really frustrating. You know, this is like a uh, restaurant or a shop or a business that has a fantastic product. Like, the food is amazing. The service is amazing. The location is great. But you got management just uh, mucking everything up to the point where you have to shut the restaurant down. So the hope here, my hope here isn't just to rehash or blame Taylor Randall. I don't, I don't think the Utah president is a lone wolf here. Uh, I think Anna Marie Casse said it well last Friday when she wrote that letter to me and she said, hey, we all bear the responsibility 
for the conference uh, devaluation. She's right. They all bear that responsibility. And if you're one of the academics who were in the room that went along with Taylor Randall's $50 million recommendation, you you have yourself to blame for that. Like There should have been more opposition to that or more thought because, you know, as they say in academia, this, this was a unanimous vote in the end. But I'm told that there were about three presidents, maybe four, who were really into the $50 million valuation. So let's not just blame Utah's president for, like, he blew up the Pac-12 because he didn't. There were a lot of other things that went wrong, including bad leadership and including six or so presidents who just went along with it without raising an objection because they were, like, indifferent to it. It's really frustrating stuff, and fans out there who are especially annoyed that Oregon State and Washington State don't have a conference right now. They might have to be a conference of two. Or maybe even fans that are disappointed that rivalries and tradition are being blown up. I have to say that, uh, you know, I empathize with you. But if you want to read that, go to johnconzano.com. All right, everybody have a great weekend. Looking forward to some big college football and a big week of radio next week. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.